Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome back to Exploring the Water of the Rings. Uh, I'm Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Happy to be back with you, as always. Uh, and tonight, I know, is the night that a lot of people have been excited about. Um, what... Um, uh, what I was tantalizing you guys with last week, but which we stopped just short of uh, the arrival of uh, a favorite character I know of many. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, to getting there tonight. Um, just, uh, first, a couple things uh, that I, I just wanted to share. First, uh, announcements, not too many announcements as we're coming towards the end of the year. Um, uh, we... Um, uh, I just we're 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 in the middle of sort of the longest uh, off season of the Signum University year. Really, it's the longest gap between semesters. So this is sort of our version of the long vacation between basically American Thanksgiving and uh, the second week of January. So. We have almost two months in which we don't have any classes happening. Uh, it's a pretty quiet moot season, of course. We had Magnolia moot in the, uh, in the second week of November, and then uh, we've had nothing since then. So my one announcement there, text moot, is happen, is coming up now almost, uh, almost a, a month away, a month from tomorrow on the 19th of January in Waco, Texas. Uh, already uh, a very large turnout uh, coming to Texmoot. They're fixing to break their own record from last year uh, for uh, largest attendance at a regional moot. It's going to be an awesome time. Uh, Texmoot is uh, uh, is a, 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 a remarkable experience. So anyway, uh, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to getting back down there. So again, 19th of January, you can go to textmoot.org or just go to signumuniversity.org and scroll down a bit and you'll see the uh, event pane there, sort of panel for um, for TextMoot. Um, anyway, cool. So, um, <laughs> so I was just seeing Mad Violinist comment, uh, having occasion to go back to some old Mythgard material um, uh, and uh, you're amazed how short and hasty uh, some of the Mythgard material feels. It is true, right? I mean, skipping passages is weird. Uh, you know, not doing every, you know, not talking about everything does uh, begin to feel strange. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I, I agree. It is a little bit, it, it is a little bit different and it's kind of dangerous to give myself this particular indulgence in some ways because, um, you know, I, I probably shouldn't give this kind of treatment to every book I talk about for the rest of my life or else we're not going to be able to talk about very many things. Um, anyway, cool. Um, so, uh, let's see, are there, um, let's see, are there, are there any, uh, okay. I just want to make sure there are no audio issues. I think no, looks like we're okay. Okay. Sorry. I just saw there was an audio problem. So I wanted to make sure. Um, okay. So I think we're good. Anyhow. So again, TextMoot is the uh, announcement for what's coming up. I have uh, another thing I just kind of wanted to share with you guys. This is a sort of a technical thing, uh, and it might not sound, it's not like super exciting, like a big, exciting upcoming event. But it's kind of fun. Um, I, uh, I I achieved a, a personal triumph uh, uh, on behalf of Signum University this past week that I'm still extremely delighted about. I uh, I I I 
achieved victory in my long battle with the IRS that I have been fighting for a long time. As some of you know, um, uh, Signum University is a tax-exempt institution, and we had our tax-exempt status revoked a while back. And I was pretty sure that that was erroneous and that we should not have had that happen. And I've been trying to get it restored and wrestling with the IRS for more like a year and a half now. Uh, and in the latter stages of which uh, I've been calling them literally every day, uh, uh, every business day, just to check in on them and uh, try to move things along. Yesterday, I got a letter in the mail that not only... Uh, reinstated us fully, but admitted they were wrong. They they confessed uh, that our status was revoked erroneously, and they're not only reinstating us, they're unrevoking us. They you know they said they would expunge the revocation from our record. Uh, so that was pretty awesome, actually. I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty pleased with that. Um, so of course this is, uh, this is directly relevant. Uh, if you have donated to Signum, um, really anytime, uh, in the last, since 2012, uh, we are retroactive, you know, fully retroactively reinstated. So everything is good. Um, so just to remind folks, if you have donated to Signum, make sure to count it as a tax deduction in America, uh, this year. I don't think we can help you if you're not in America, sadly, but, uh, for those of you who are in America, uh, we can, we can do that, which also means of course, as we get into the last week, you know, if uh, your company or, you know, you're looking for a tax shelter, <laughs> feel free to join us. So it's pretty cool. Um, anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, again, it's kind of a, it's kind of a dorky bureaucratic thing, but it was a fairly major, um, a fairly major triumph uh, on the on on Signum's part, uh, so I was uh, I was I was I was fairly pleased. Anyway, just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, okay, um, let's see. Am I? Oh, I see. Okay, hang on. I see it's Discord where the audio problem is. My fault. I'm sorry. There we go. Okay. All right. My apologies. Um, so yeah, for, the, for those of you who are listening in one one side or not the other, I apologize for that. Um, okay, right, yeah. Sorry, click the wrong button over there and not up there and all that kind of thing. Okay, got it now. All right, anyway, so let us jump into the text. And to, uh, uh, to celebrate, we're going to do something really fun, uh, which is going to make everybody happy. And that is, we're going <laughs> to go back to Weathertop for a minute. Um, of course, the title of tonight's class is The Hero with the Terrible Agent. Um, the Tolkien character who just didn't, whose agent could not get him into any Tolkien films. Uh, there's been, I think, never a single uh, adaptation. I mean, it, it, not only did he get replaced by Arwen in the Peter Jackson film, which was hard enough, but he got... He got uh, uh, replaced by Legolas of all people in the uh, in the the uh, the Bakshi version. So, man, the radio play. You're right, mad violinist. We do get him in the radio play. Uh, so yeah, it's all good. Anyhow, um, one. Uh, uh, I, I was I've, I've been resisting. There have been a couple people who have tried to draw us back to uh, to Weathertop, and I've been resisting. Uh, but Robert Brown had a really really awesome comment pointing out a passage that I had completely forgotten about. So I, I, it's it's trust me, it's worth it. I probably won't take us too long, but it's totally worth it. Um, uh, okay, so 
this is it's, again, this is long, but uh, but worth it. Robert says, uh, you have often said that Tolkien was a great rereader, able to approach his stories from outside them. These paragraphs published in the Reader's Companion, an extract of a text, some of which was published as The Hunt for the Ring in Unfinished Tales, though not this part, seems an interesting example. So this is Tolkien commenting on the Weathertop uh, attack in the same uh, period when he was writing what was published as The Hunt for the Ring. So this is Tolkien's commentary after, so this is after the publication of The Lord of the Rings. The camp is attacked by night by five riders, but they are driven off by Aragorn, is his initial interesting comment, right? And withdraw after wounding Frodo. The Witch King now knows who is the bearer, and is greatly puzzled that it should be a small creature, and not Aragorn, who seems to be a great power, though apparently only a ranger. But the bearer has been marked with the knife and, he thinks, cannot last more than a day or two. It is a strange thing that the camp was not watched while darkness lasted on the night of October uh, 6 to 7, and the crossing of the road to the southward lands seems not to have been observed, so that the witch king again lost track of the ring. That is not the, the one where there's the cry, but the earlier crossing, the, the immediate crossing. Uh, for this, there were probably several reasons. The, uh, the least to be expected being the most important, namely that the Witch King, the great captain, was actually dismayed. He had been shaken by the fire of Gandalf and began to perceive that the mission on which Sauron had sent him was one of great peril to himself, both by the way and on his return to his master, if unsuccessful. And he had, not, and he had been doing ill, so far achieving nothing save rousing the power of the wise and directing them to the ring. But above all, the timid and terrified bearer had resisted him, had dared to strike at him with an enchanted sword made by his own enemies long ago for his destruction. Narrowly, it had missed him. How he had come by it, save in the barrows of Cardolan. Then he was in some way mightier than the Barrow White, and he called on Elbereth, a name of terror to the Nazgul. He was in league with the High Elves of the Havens." Escaping a wound that would have been as deadly to him as the Mordor knife to Frodo, as was proved in the end, uh, that of course when Mary stabs him, he withdrew and hid for a while out of doubt and fear, both of Aragorn and especially of Frodo. But fear of Sauron and the forces of Sauron's will was the stronger. So that, now back to Robert's commentary here. Here, Tolkien draws some initial conclusion as many readers, sorry, draws the same initial conclusion as many readers, that Aragorn was responsible for repulsing the riders. But as he goes on, he does not support this view, ending up attributing the Lord's failure especially to Frodo, as a closer reading of the text would tend to encourage. Do you think Tolkien forgot or perhaps didn't realize the full import of his words when he came to reconsider this passage? Or was he playing at following a typical path of a reader? Great, great questions. Okay, so um, to start here with Robert's questions, um, do I think Tolkien forgot or didn't realize the full import of his words, or was he playing at following a typical path? I do not think he was playing. Um, I think that Tolkien is sort of sincerely working through this here. Um, uh, do I think he forgot or didn't realize the full import? The latter. I think he didn't realize it. And not just necessarily realize the full import. Um several things to remember. One, the, and I mentioned this before, the scene, the, the, the battle, right? The, the, that whole sequence, 
um, emerged almost word for word in the very first draft. The very first time the story gets to Weathertop, the, this attack appears. And again, it, very, very, very close to the final text. He changed almost nothing from the original uh, text to the final published text. Um, so what does this tell us? Well, again, when you talk about like realizing the full import of his words, there's a little bit more to it than that, right? Aragorn's role was still at the time that that was uh, played, b- being played by the by the uh, by Trotter the Hobbit with wooden shoes, right? So, um, I, so yeah, I mean, it's it's on the one hand, it's completely different, right? Uh, on the other hand, um, the words are almost exactly the same, right? So it's not necessarily exactly. So to say he doesn't realize the full import of it is certainly true, but it's. Um, there's more to it than that. That's not quite, I think, a sufficient way to describe it because the words actually came to mean something different. In, 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 one, in one way of thinking about this, we've often talked about Tolkien retconning stuff, right? But that suggests that Tolkien is sort of consciously doing that. And sometimes I think he clearly is, right? Like, okay, I need to invent a way in which this thing that I said before can be made consistent with these other things that I've said, right? And I think there are some times when we can we can see him very purposefully setting out to do this, right? And kind of brainstorming how to make all this fit together. Of course, obviously, the biggest and, and most famous example of this is the whole contradiction with the first edition of The Hobbit, right? Uh, and uh, the fact that Gollum originally was fully willing to give the ring away uh, in The Hobbit as it had been published and, and circulated and read for, uh, you know, like a decade at that point. Um, anyway, um, so sometimes we do see Tolkien actively retconning. Sometimes it's not exactly active, in that same way, right? What he's doing the way what he's doing here is not active retcon. He's not saying, okay, how can I make this fit with the other things? Rather, he's saying, okay, in its new context, what can it what does it mean, right? Um he uses the same words, right? He takes the same scene. Now it has a different context. The biggest change, of course, is that the character of uh, Aragorn has changed, obviously. Um, but there are other changes, too. I mean, the experience that they have with Tom Bombadil, with the Barrow Whites, is not exactly the same in those early drafts as it is now. Um, uh, in particular, of course, in the very first draft, when this scene first emerged, the Barrow Whites were ring rates. They were the same, like the, like the, you know, the, the evil spirits sent by the, uh, uh, you know, by the, the dark one into the, ba- like th- that, those were the ring rates, right? That's, you know, the, the, uh, the, the ring rates are Barrow Whites on horses. Um, so again, like the whole question of like the Barrow and everything is, is totally different. So when Tolkien is asking himself, that question is he's thinking it through from the Witch King's perspective. He's thinking it through in this new context, right? Then he was in some way mightier than the Barrow White, right? And he called upon Elbereth. Um, many of these things would not have been, many of those questions would not have been relevant. So in some ways, what we're seeing here is him considering this in the new light. Now, I think it's very typical of Tolkien that instead of saying, well, I need to change this, right? Because now it's totally different, right? Now this is like, you know, I, I, I've got a, you know, 
somehow come in again. No, he doesn't do that. He just keeps the text exactly the, the way it was, and he just thinks about what's already written differently, right? That is a very typical kind of Tolkien move. Um, let's minimize the, the revision and instead do this sort of extra layer of interpretive work, right? Um, but I agree with, uh, you know, certainly with Robert's overall point, overall argument that... Um, that what we're seeing here is Tolkien going back and rereading his text. Now, thinking it through in this context, um, in the context of essentially the final story. Remember, this is part of that hunt for the ring. I'm going to go back and think through in a little bit more detail, kind of flesh out the backstory of the Ringwraiths and what they were doing and their whole journey and their interaction with Saruman and how they got up to Bree and uh, the, what was going on in the Witch King's head, right? All that stuff that you can find in Unfinished Tales in the section called The Hunt for the Ring. Um, so uh, um, anyway, uh, we... Um, uh, we can see... So again, th this is the period where he's doing that. So... Now that the story is complete, right? It's in its final form. And again, this is a very typical sort of Tolkien thing, right? This is, I, I hate to, I, I, I sound like I'm always making unflattering comparisons and it's unfair, but it's our own fault. Um, again, I want to sort of compare uh, or contrast rather J.K. Rowling's approach and J.R.R. Tolkien's approach to dealing with their published texts, right? Um Rowling wants to go back and, and like change things, right? Like with her whole, uh, like, well, you know, who said that Hermione isn't black comment, right? Well, uh, you did actually in your text. Um, you know, so, uh, it's, you know, she, th th then there, there are a bunch of things where she is like trying to not exactly retcon, but just sort of, uh, I don't know. I kind of change things, um, authoritatively sort of insist on things that either are not in the text or are, uh, are, are actually can be disproven based upon the texts. Um, Tolkien doesn't do that kind of thing. Tolkien sort of took his, the published text in a sense as, you know, this is the received text now, right? So now he, he kind of approaches them as scholar saying, okay, this is the received text. We have to, you know, it's our job as scholars to make sense of this text, right? Um, and that's how he, um, that's how he tended to approach this. And that's what I think we can see happening here. So anyway, pretty cool. Uh, interesting to see. I, I, as I said, I had completely forgotten this passage because it's not, I was, I was looking at the hunt for the ring and, but I, uh, you know, Robert, thank you so much for reminding me had totally forgot about this passage. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, for, because it's not in Unfinished Tales, and so I had completely forgotten about it. So, Robert, thank you so much for reminding us of this. Really fun to see Tolkien working through and coming to many of the same conclusions that we came to, right? Now, notice, you know, I don't say, like, you know, this proves that, like, you know, any of our particular conclusions were right or wrong. See, again, that's the fun thing with dealing with Tolkien's treatment of the text, right? He's not, you know, this, 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 these passages that he he's this is not like I as author insist that this is the real story, right? He's doing analysis of the text, like this is his reading of the text. Um, and I, you know, personally, I I would feel free to to disagree with him. I don't really disagree with him. There's no single point here uh, that I'm like, oh no, I think he's totally wrong there. But you know, if I did think that, I wouldn't be shy about it, right? I mean, you know, again, I feel like he and I are both, you know, we're both readers, we're both scholars kind of approaching this text and trying to make sense of it. And, you know, he has his reading and his theories and I have my readings and my theories. And sometimes, I, you know, I mean, again, it's, to me, it's a lot of fun, 
right? Uh, I, I really enjoy... Uh, uh, it's one of the things that I really love about uh, sort of how Tolkien approaches that. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, yes, Lilith, I, I think it's exactly right. Uh, she asks, would he have considered his revisions within the narrative a sort of searching for the correct history, like filtering through different scrolls for exactly how things went down? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that is very much how he often... Um, uh, uh, talked about things. Absolutely. Um, uh, as if his job were not to invent more material or to fill in gaps himself. Sometimes he fills in gaps. Um, but not usually, right? Usually it's like, well, let's try to exactly like he would be doing as a medievalist. If he's, you know, when he's reading like the Volsunga saga or something like that, right? His job isn't to fill in the gaps. His job is to look at the different texts and say, well, based on the evidence, right? What, uh, what conclusions can we draw? Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, see, people were, uh, uh, Lincoln was speculating about, you know, Tolkien probably would have, like, continued to, if Tolkien were still alive, he would still be uh, thinking through and analyzing. I completely agree. Uh, (laughs) Trifle added, if Tolkien were still alive, we still probably wouldn't have the Silmarillion. You may be right. You may be right about that. Um, Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, exactly. Harnuth, yes. Uh, Harnuth, of course, is reminding us, which is yeah, uh, certainly something I wanted to remind folks. Uh, Unfinished Tales, of course, is not published by Tolkien. It's published by Christopher. Uh, that's the very, f- I believe, the very first thing that Christopher, pu- I mean, the Silmarillion is the first thing he published, but that is the first of the, like, sort of extra materials. Um, not the Silmarillion proper, but the sort of the extra, you know, uh, Tolkien's, uh, you know, sort of filling in stuff, thinking through things, uh, uh, retconning, writing essays like the essay on the Astari and and uh, and stuff, untold stories. Um, think trying to work through what the heck to do with Goadriel and Celeborn, right? You know, all those things. Uh, Christopher did put those together and give them to us. So in 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 a sense, of course, none of that stuff was ever really. Um, what their publication future was is not obvious necessarily, right? If to, and I'm not saying that Tolkien never meant for them to be published, as I don't think he would have objected. Not on the same level as, for instance, the Book of Lost Tales, right? Which I think I always feel a little bit guilty reading Tolkien's really early stuff, like those early poems that he wrote for his wife when they were quite young, right? Uh, like the you know the uh, you and me in the cottage of lost play. I'm thinking of right. I mean, I'm kind of thinking like Tolkien would be really embarrassed to know that people were reading some of those early poems, I have to think. Um, so as I say, I feel a little bit guilty um, uh, sometimes reading that early stuff. And Un- Unfinished Tales isn't in that category. I don't think that he would have been, you know, actively embarrassed to have that stuff come out. But um, anyway, um, so, uh, oh, Lincoln, it was Amethorn who made the original comment. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, about uh, uh, Tolkien continuing his work. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, or the Father Christmas letters. Well, Tony, I wonder, like, Father Christmas letters are very personal, you know, of course, in some ways, but I actually, they're fairly polished, really. Um, I don't think, um, 
Well, I certainly think again on the like the Tolkien embarrassment scale, right? Of like uh, you know to to sort of rank his unpublished works, which Christopher has come out with. Uh, which ones would he be most embarrassed by? Again, to me, things like You and Me in the Cottage of Wasp play are pretty close to the top. Um, I would put I would put Rover Random above. Um, uh, above the Father Christmas letters, I think the Father Christmas letters, it seems to me, would be fairly low uh, on the list. Um, I, 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 I think he'd be fine uh, with those, um, even though they are they are personal, but they're personal in a different kind of way. They're personal, but they're also a performance, right? A performance intended for a very limited audience, but still, you know, it was uh, it was a performance. Um, anyway. Cool. Um, okay. So, um, all right, let's, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, it, it's Arden crown. It's true. You know, when you, um, um, when you, it, it, it does make you think, right. Like imagining like all the embarrassing things that, that, I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine if like <laughs> people ever read, I don't even know where they, I don't even think they exist anymore. Like, you know, the like novel, the fantasy novel I started writing in eighth grade, like, oh my goodness, <laughs> like, oh boy, uh, really glad, uh, uh, computers didn't have hard drives in those days. Um, and that the internet hadn't been invented. Um, but anyhow, um, so anyhow, okay. Um, so this was, I, I was, uh, thank you, Robert, again for sharing this and, um, uh, really interesting to read. By the way, the one that, that most of those things you'll notice, you know, you'll recognize were things that we had been talking to. You also notice that Tolkien grades the Witch King's performance much more harshly uh, than I did, right? Um, clearly, I'm a softer grader than Tolkien is. But um, the one element there, the only element really in that whole scenario that he was emphasizing that we didn't discuss um, was the barrel white angle, which I thought was really good to me. That was the, 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 the thing that was kind of most eye opening to me where I was like, Oh yeah, we didn't, even, we, I, I did not even think that right. That he would not only be a little bit freaked out by the sword, but would, would think it through on that level, right? This is a sword. This has to have come from the barrow downs. He can only have gotten this out of a barrow. So what this thing, right? This little shrimpy dude, took out a barrel white, right? Of course, he doesn't know about Tom Bombadil's involvement in that whole thing. Um, that's a real, that, you know, that, that, that moment of doubt for the Witch King, like, am I confronting somebody who, who actually took down um, a barrel white in like a boss fight? Is that seriously what, you know, talk about, you know, sort of doubt and uncertainty and, and giving for, and then of course, right after that. So he's like, nah, it's okay. I'm going for him. Right. And then when he goes for him, boom, right. Drops the E-bomb man. Right. I can say, Oh, but you know, it's like underestimation uh, uh, on top of underestimation. Right. Um, and the witch King thoroughly, thoroughly spooked at that point. Um, uh, yeah, Lincoln, it, it is a lot like Snaga and his great elf warrior uh, in The Return of the King. Um, it, and that's, a, I think, a nifty parallel, right? Um, it's one of the other times, it's one, one of the few times in the, uh, in the published text itself that we get um, sort of what things look like from the bad guy's point of view, right? Um, Tolkien himself is just kind of brainstorming his way through this, right? Based on, uh, based on the text that he had written 
long time ago in a to in what was a, almost a totally different story at that point. Right. Um, but we can see that same principle uh, coming into play with Sam uh, uh, later on. Right. That, uh, you know, the good guys may feel like they are very serious underdogs and it's kind of true, but things don't always look the same uh, from um, from the other side of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and well, for Thoughtless, though, that's the thing, right? Um it's true that the Barrow Whites were the Witch King's minions, right? But that's exactly why it would happen. Nobody knows better than he uh, what a big deal the Barrow Whites are. Right? I mean, he knows the strength of the Barrow Whites because abs- you're right. They're his minions, right? He sent them there. So um, if it were somebody else, right, then maybe they would entertain the thought like, well, maybe the Barrow Whites aren't what they're cracked up to be, right? Um Maybe these Barrow Whites are wimps after all, right? But the Witch King is going to be saying that. He knows. Um, and it's certain, it's obviously true. There's no way that Frodo could have actually taken the Barrow White toe-to-toe. He was standing up to him. He was doing pretty well, right? But I, I think there's no question. I mean, yeah, okay, he cut off the hand. Um, was he going to win? Was he going to be able to liberate his people and, you know, get the swords and everything? I don't think so, right? I don't think um, that's how that was going to pan out if he didn't uh, get some help from Tom Bombadil. Um, So, again, not knowing the Tom Bombadil angle, but knowing very well, uh, as you point out, um, what the Barrow Whites are and what the Barrow Whites are about, then, then yeah, I think that's, um, that's a... That's a big deal. <laughs> Mad violinist. Yeah, exactly. This thought process, this thought process is only like to be likely to be increased after Frodo apparently hits him with a river. Yeah, exactly. This is, um, um, yeah, it's, 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 things are going to work out. Pre- and, and he could be forgiven for going back to Sauron and being like, man, like, they got this ring bearer, and I'm telling you, he doesn't look like much, but holy cow, right? This guy, I mean, unbelievable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So, yeah, JJ, no, absolutely. Would Frodo have been able to get so far without having stayed with Tom? Yeah, I mean, think about that, right? I mean, that's a that's a really interesting what if, you know? Okay, so like the shortcut through the old forest ended in disaster, or nearly ended in disaster, right? Yes, but of course... It nearly ended in disaster, but it also actually ended in new catastrophe, right? Um, so that's all. Uh, that's all. That's all good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, so I see that... Um, <laughs> I saw that earlier on you guys had already digressed uh, and uh, had begun discussing Gorfindel without me, which I totally, I totally understand. Uh, so let's, um, let's move on. Here we go. Are you ready? It's time. Okay. <laughs> Helgebrand says he's starting to feel a bit sorry for the Witch King. I know. That's, I think, why I want to grade him on a curve, right? I'm like, man, you know, okay, he, he kind of failed in lots of different ways and on several different occasions, but, you know, he, um, uh, he, he was, you know, he was dealt a difficult hand, you know, come on. Um, okay. All right. The road lay quiet under the long shadows of early evening. There was no sign of any other travelers to be seen 
As there was now no other possible course for them to take, they climbed down the bank and, turning left, went off as fast as they could. Uh, remember that not only do they have to go by the road because they can't, they just can't go overland and they've got to cross the ford anyway, but remember how it's, uh, they, he's described that the road is like between banks here. So they are, they're trapped, right? They, they, they can't even get off the road in a hurry, uh, very effectively. Um, uh, you know, in some places they're going through, you know, what, what, what sounded almost like a cutting. So, um, yeah, that's, a um, that's, a. this is, uh, very stressful, right? Soon a shoulder of the hills cut off, cut off the light of the fast westering sun. A cold wind flowed down to meet them from the mountains ahead. They were beginning to look out for a place off the road where they could camp for the night, when they heard a sound that brought sudden fear back into their hearts, the noise of hoofs behind them. They looked back, but they could not see far because of the many windings and rollings of the road. As quickly as they could, they scrambled off the beaten way and up into the deep heather and bilberry brushwood of the slopes above, until they came to a small patch of thick-growing hazels. As they peered out from among the bushes, they could see the road, faint and gray in the failing light, some thirty feet below them. The sound of hoofs drew nearer. They were going fast, with a light clippity-clippity-clip. Then faintly, as if it was blown away from them by the breeze, they seemed to catch a dim ringing, as of bells tinkling. All right. Um, so... The way in which they're being channeled into the road here, right? They have no choice but to do this. Um, there's a, there's a kind of the phrase that Sam is going to use for this kind of situation later on when they're in Mordor, right? Is trusting to luck, right? Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just have to trust to luck, Mr. Frodo, right? Um, we don't get that, you know, Strider is just kind of hoping for the best, right? Um, but I, I think that, you know, what we will hear from Sam later on is, um, uh, is, is, is very much like this. When there's no other choice, right? Uh, what you have to do is embrace the one choice that's given to you and just trust to luck, right? Um, so, that I, I, I'm really interested in how that choice is emphasized here. Notice the way that the sort of suspense of this scene is played on. Um, one of the things, one of the, you know, this is one of the many examples of sentences that usually just kind of roll past me when I'm reading, but when we stop and we're looking at, at it together, um, I'm, I'm noticing as if for the first time, um, when the fast westering sun, when the light is uh, uh, cut off, by a shoulder of the hills, right? And the cold wind flowed down to meet them from the mountains ahead. So darkness is falling on them. So they, they're, they're down in the road. They're exposed. They're in this channel, right? They're like sitting ducks for the Nazgul. The Nazgul probably know they're there and are on the road. And darkness falls. And as soon as darkness falls, they, you know, we get described this cold wind that's flowing over them from the east, Right from the mountains that are ahead of them, this cold, so the, the darkness and the cold, the breath of air, the cold breath from the east, uh, very ominous. Right, it sounds like they're going right towards their enemies. Right, uh, the 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 they're they're clearly about to be caught. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, 
So, Karita, you're right that clippity is not a scary word, but that's the moment where it shifts, right? Um, uh, that That's the moment where it ceases to be ominous. We get this this sense of their fear, this sense of being trapped and, and of darkness coming and, and, and the cold breath uh, rolling over them, right? They're, they're, they're toast. And then they hear the noise of hooves behind them, right? So that's, this is what they've been afraid of all along. There is uh, a clear parallel with um, uh, Tony, as you said, with their first encounter with the Ringwraith uh, in the Shire, right? So notice how even we as readers have a cue, right? We have a cue to, 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 to look at the scene in a particular way. We've seen this before, right? Originally they were like, Hey, maybe it's Gandalf. Let's play a joke on him. Right. Um, but it wasn't Gandalf and soon was revealed not to be Gandalf when they've had hoofs overtaking them before. We have reasons to believe, right? We have plenty of, uh, um, of uh, of reasons to fear that they're exactly right about this, right? Um, so here they here they come. Darkness has fallen. The cold is washing over them, and the enemy is now upon them. And they're scrambling off the beaten way. They're just kind of hunkering down in the bushes, thirty feet away from the road. Um, it's exactly Tony. It's it's exactly as like useless as trying to hide in the Shire was. They probably are remembering. We can't help but remember uh, the Black Rider dismounting and crawling along the ground. They can sniff them out, right? Um, and there are more of them now, um, uh, plus a pony, right? So, I mean, if he almost sniffed out the three hobbits on foot before, how much easier uh, is he going to be able to do this now? Now, again, like you guys are talking about the bells, but notice the bells. We don't get that until the last sentence, right? Um, I'm trying to work through this paragraph to, to, to notice the effect of this paragraph as we go. Um, our narrator here has put us into the position of the hobbits, right? Their sense of dread, their sense of like, you know, we're, oh my gosh, like we're going to get caught. Like there's no way we can't get caught. Here they come, right? We knew this was going to happen. It's just like it happened before. Oh man. And they're going to come and sniff us out. What are we going to do? Right. Um, and it's not until we get the light clippity-clippity-clip. I agree. Uh, clippity, Oakwig, that's the pivot word, right? It, it, that's exactly it. Um, uh, yes, and Tony, you're absolutely right. The ringing of bells is a good sign in more than one way. And yes, I, it's, I, it's, I, I saw several of you commenting that it makes you think of Father Christmas. Uh, uh, yes, though remember, the White Witch does use bells, too. She just wasn't using the ones with bells on, right? Um, but anyway, nevertheless, um, uh, it's sort of like that moment, right? Uh, there's there's actually an interesting parallel between when the Pevensey kids and Mr. Beaver uh, are being caught up to by exactly what they've been dreading most, right? That is a dude in a sleigh pulled by reindeer. Um, and uh, that, again, that's that's just been their nightmares, and now it's finally coming true, only to, for it to turn out to be a catastrophe instead, right? It's Father Christmas instead of the White Witch. Very similar here, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyhow, so um, uh, 
Johannes, I, I, I see no reason to believe there are not actual bells. I, it, it, it could be ambient elf sound, potentially. Uh, just like the resonance of an elf lord, right? Sounds like small bells tinkling off in the wind, but it's, 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 I'm sure it's actually bells. Um, but it's all, it's all, it's all good. Um, it certainly does show, as I think one of you was, um, was suggesting, um, that Glorfindel, yeah, Lilith was saying this, doesn't seem very concerned about stealth, right? No, Glorfindel's not sneaking up on anybody. That, again, remembering Narnia, is why the White Witch says, let's use the harness without the bells, right? Because she doesn't want to warn them of her approach. Um, uh, and uh, a sledge pulled over the snow by reindeer would be relatively quiet, right? Um, without the bells. Um yeah, Glorfindel not sneaking at all. Uh, he's galloping fast, and and he is using the bells, right? Um, so, I love the turn there. They were going fast with a light clippity clippity clip. Um, notice how the narrator gives no commentary here either, right? We don't. We're not told. We're not prompted uh, immediately to rethink this, right? To be like, to, to, uh, it's like we ourselves are allowed to come to the same, to the same conclusion, uh, that they are right. Like, hang on a second. Are, you know, we've been, we've been set up to be terrified here, right? Are, are our fears in fact being justified or is something else happening here? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Corfindel carries his own theme music with him. Uh, exactly. Um, and Boomful, I agree. I do think that he's using the bells in part because he's he's uh, it, uh, defiantly he is doing the opposite of stealth. He wants to be heard in part, of course, because I think he would like to be heard. Uh, you know, when you're trying to find somebody in the wilderness, going around making a noise so that they can hear you and maybe come towards you, and and you know, is a good idea. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, he's, he would like to warn the Black Riders that he's coming, right? Uh, to give them time to scurry out of his way. Um, so yeah, I think it's all, I think it's all good. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, good. Okay. So let's see how the narrator turns it here. Again, the narrator has given us no direct cues, has left us to draw, you know, to, to have our own moment of doubt. You know, wait a second. What's going on here? That does not sound like a black rider's horse, said Frodo, listening intently. The other hobbits agreed, hopefully, that it did not, but they all remained full of suspicion. They had been in fear of pursuit for so long that any sound from behind seemed ominous and unfriendly. But Strider was now leaning forward, stooped to the ground, with a hand to his ear and a look of joy on his face. The light faded and the leaves on the bushes rustled softly. Clearer and nearer now the bells jingled, and clippity-clip came the quick-trotting feet. Suddenly into view below came a white horse, gleaming in the shadows, running swiftly. In the dusk its headstall flickered and flashed, as if it were studded with gems like living stars. The rider's cloak streamed behind him, and his hood was thrown back. His golden hair flowed shimmering in the wind of his speed. To Frodo, it appeared that a white light was shining through the form and raiment of the rider, as if through a thin veil. Okay. Um, uh, lots of awesome things uh, to, uh, uh, to talk about here. So, 
it's Frodo's dialogue, right? It's Frodo's own words that first either tip us off to or confirm our own suspicions, right? Um, yeah. Cecilia, I agree. I do think that Tolkien means the bells to be both uh, sort of a, a friendly message uh, to the folks he's looking for and trying to find and also a, a sort of warning to the enemy. I absolutely agree with that. Um, so um, anyhow, um, that doesn't sound like a Black Rider's horse. Um, the other hobbits agreed, hopefully, that it did not. Um the contrast, of course, comes in with with Strider, right? Um, Strider, as soon as Strider hears the noise, right? Strider hears, and it's not just the bells, right? It's it's the clippity-clip, right, that he hears. He's got his, he's stooped to the ground with a hand to his ear. He's listening to the footfalls of the horse. He recognizes Glorfindel, or should I say, he recognizes Asphaloth, uh, the horse, with um uh with uh, uh a uh, by the sound of his hoofs right um which is kind of awesome actually there's something about an elf horse that just sounds different right strider can tell the difference just by listening before gorfindel comes around it's not i think just the bells that he's listening to i think um and he already has a look of joy on his face right um, it might smell like elf horses, right? You can smell the elves coming. You can hear their horses come. Um, by the way, of course, you'll notice that I was teasing you guys with uh, my subtitle here. I said the celebrity was approaching in the last slide. And this one, I said the celebrity arrives accompanied by Gorfindel. Because, of course, Gorfindel's horse is in the film, right? Uh, the, he made the cut. You know, Gorfindel, not so much. Um, but... Uh, one thing I don't know so far, Thoughtless, I have no idea if Strider, does Strider recognize this horse in particular, right? Uh, you know, that is like, is he like, wait, that's Asphaloth, it's Gorfindel, right? Or does he, or is he just like, hey, it's an elf horse, uh, so this has got to be good news? I'm not really sure which one it is. Um, but, um, uh, but clearly, uh, there, um, there should be, um, uh, there should be a, uh, 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 again, it's, it's good news one way or the other. Um, now, um, uh, yeah, good. Tony, several people are, are concerned about the headstall, uh, of the horse. I don't know how rash you, you guys always are right here. We're talking our way through the passage. You guys are always jumping into the second paragraph while we're still talking about the first paragraph. We're not going fast enough for you guys. <laughs> anyway, yes, the horse has a head stall, right? Uh, which is, you know, like a, like a bridle, but without a bit, um, which is an important point, right? Because, um, and this is this is one of those examples of pure retcon. Um, Tolkien originally, in the original description of this, he just described the horse as being ridden with bit and bridle and saddle like every other horse is normally ridden. Um, the whole idea of riding elf fashion, the the you know this concept of elves having a different relationship with horses so that they don't use any kind of uh, you know, saddles or bridles or anything like that. He simply hadn't like that hadn't come up yet. Uh, that's something that he thought of later in the story and had to go back and make revisions uh, to this passage. But of course, you'll notice he didn't want to take it out at all. So you see the the problem that Tolkien 
was confronted with here. On the one hand, got to get rid of the bit, right? There's no way that Gorfindel has a bit in his horse's mouth, right? Asphaloth is not using a bit, but he can't get rid of the, the, this, he can't make him just riding bareback because then where are the bells? What is Gorfindel going to be wearing them on his clothing, right? Is, is you know, he's going to have them tied in the mane of, of the horse or whatever. So he still wanted the horse to, and not to mention the fact that it's rather nice for Frodo that there is a saddle, right? Or else poor, like semi comatose Frodo would not really be able to stay on, uh, when they, uh, when they move forward. So Tolkien wanted to keep, you know, uh, the, the tack on, uh, Asphaloth, but he wanted to make it fit with what is said later on about elves and their horses. So retcon, right. And so the primary thing that he does is get rid of the bit. Uh, so it's not a regular bridle, uh, anymore. Exactly. Trifle was just saying the same thing about, uh, uh, Frodo having to be able to ride. Um, so, so yeah, so this, this, that, that is retcon, right? That's Tolkien simply going back and having, over the course of writing the story, changed his mind about something. Again, that concept hadn't occurred to him before, and now, um, now he has to, he has to sort of deal with it. So he finds a kind of compromise to make it, to make it work. Um, is it still a kind of contradiction? No, again, I don't think it technically, uh, contradicts anything. Um, I mean, what are you going to tell Gorfindel he can't ride this way? Are you saying it's a law that all elves have to ride bareback, right? Um, you can still say that riding with no, you know, uh, no bit bridle or, or, or saddle is, is riding elf fashion because it's only elves who ride that way. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all elves always ride that way necessarily. Right. Um, it's all good. Right. It works. Um, <laughs> Karina likes to think that the horse just likes the bling. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, just, you know, the, the horse, um, horse probably enjoy. it's it see it's not really glorfindel's uh uh soundtrack that we're hearing it's asphalot's soundtrack that we're hearing he's the one who likes the bells right um yeah anyway um good so um <laughs> interesting uh uh Corey schwab says gorfindel was millennia older than legolas uh maybe this elf fashion riding is a is a is a recent thing yeah exactly it's one of these newfangled thing that these young sindar are doing nowadays right oh uh, yeah okay whatever um yeah yeah okay so um let me finish what i was saying about paragraph one however um I love the look of joy on Strider's face, and I love the gap, right? Uh, the gap between Strider's knowledge and the Hobbit's knowledge. Um, the Hobbits don't know what's going on, right? Um, but I, and, and I love the way in which Tolkien introduces the reassurance to us, right? Um, oh, yes, Arden Cran says, have elves always ridden horses? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a thing way back. Um, Elvish cavalry was a big deal, uh, back in, uh, uh, the battle, the wars in Beleriand. So, yep, yep. They brought horses with them. They were riding horses in Valinor. So absolutely. Um, absolutely. Okay. Um, so, um, the hobbits are still full of suspicion, right? Um, they're hopeful. Because again, the jingle bells, they've never heard jingle bells associated with, uh, black riders before. Um, 
but they're still worried. And, you know, um, even remembering back to the joke with the trolls, they've been fooled before. That was in the other direction, right? Where they were more nervous than they should be. But again, like one thing that's been recently demonstrated to them is that they're not super good at assessing levels of danger, right? Um, if they make rash assumptions, uh, they could end up being wrong. And, and, and again, they're, they're already really afraid. Um, so, uh, but then that contrast, right? So they're, they're in doubt. They're, they're wanting to think that this is reassurance. And then they look at Strider and we as readers, just along with the hobbits, look over at Strider and just see the look of joy on his face, right? And now we know, okay, there's really good reason for hope. Strider knows full well what's going on here. And again, I just love the fact that um, uh, Strider is able to recognize them, Uh to recognize the horse. Um, okay. Um, suddenly into view below came a white horse gleaming in the shadows. Yes, he's not gleaming in the gloom. I saw you guys were pointing that out before. Yep, he's gleaming, but there's no gloom around. Tolkien has resisted his, one of his favorite alliterations, right? That GL alliteration. Um, gleaming in the shadows. Now, here, but here, by the way, I think this is important. This would actually be a pretty relevant place for gloom, right? I mean, it's dusk. It's, uh, it's, it's not quite fully dark yet. So gloom or gloaming even, it's actually gloaming, right? That is technically the time of day that it is. Um, um, but they're not gleaming in the gloaming, right? It's gleaming in the shadows. And I think that's significant, right? Because what were they afraid of? They were afraid of, of, of shadows. They were afraid of the servants of the shadow. They thought that the shadow was overtaking them when they heard the sound of hooves behind them, right? But instead of finding shadows, instead of finding the darkness overtaking them, what they see is that a gleaming white figure who shines in the shadows, right? Who is gleaming in the shadows is the one that is running swiftly forward and overtaking them. Um, so I think that that's, um, uh, that that's good. And Matt violinist, I think that that's really, uh, uh, good too. Um, gloom gleaming, he says, seems to happen more when something good is actually in danger from evil. Um, uh, this isn't quite like that. Yeah, I don't think it's a universal rule, but that's an interesting theory um, and a testable theory. We should look at that when something is gleaming in the gloom. Um, is that always the trend or, or is there a strong trend towards that? That what we're seeing is uh, like a, a um, something good that is through and like despite peril uh, shining uh, in the gloom. Uh, that would be interesting to see. Um, but uh, but so I agree this is a little bit different. Um the headstall is flickering and flashing as if studded with gems like living stars. Um, flickering and flashing. Notice what this means, right? It's, there's no light to be reflected. It's, 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 it's gloaming, right? It's dusk. Um, there's no, there's, you know, the sun is down. Uh, the, you know, there's no description of the, uh, of the moon, right? Having risen. Um, the gemstones on the headstall of Asphaloth appear to be shining in their own radiance, right? To actually be emitting light, um, like unto, you know, the Silmarils uh, and that kind of thing. We know that those, um, they're the most famous of these kinds of gems, but not the only of these kinds of gems. Um, uh, so uh, the, it's Carita's serious bling. That uh, uh, as <clears throat> Asphaloth is wearing here, presumably gems 
that are um, uh, that are th- that were brought from Valinor, right? Originally forged over in Valinor by the Noldor when they were first inventing gems, right? Um, so that's um, it's a it's a pretty significant headstall uh, that his horse is uh, um, is is wearing there. Um, the cloak streaming behind him, the hood was thrown back. Um, to me, here again, the effect of this is contrast, right? A cloaked and booted rider. Again, that's what we're that's what we're fearing. It's like point by point, we've got the contrast. First, the sound, right? The clippity clip. Then the sight, right? The light. These are not black. These are not shadows on black horses. This is a gleaming white horse, uh, gleaming in the shadows, right? And then we've got uh, the brightness again, more light, actually emitting light, right, from the gems on its headstall. And then it's where it's a, it's a cloaked rider, right? But it is not. But the rider is not cloaked, right? He's wearing a cloak, but he's not concealing himself. He's not wrapped up, right? Um, his cloak is streaming out behind him, um, uh, and his hood is is off, right? Is thrown back, and his golden hair uh, flowed shimmering in the wind of his speed, right? Um, again, emphasizing everything that is light and bright and sparkling about Gorfindel, uh, again, in huge very noticeable and very direct contrast to the ring rates that they were uh, afraid of. Um, to Frodo, it appeared that a white light was shining through the form and raiment of the rider as if through a thin veil. Um, okay. All right. Yes. <laughs> now we can talk about the line that you guys have wanted to talk about. Um, uh, so, um, uh, all right. Um, Yes, yeah, so Mad Violinist, I too think so all right, um Frodo's ability to discern uh the this radiance of Gorfindel, right? Um clearly as a consequence of his wound, I think most most immediately. Um uh so um anyway, yeah. Uh and I think could it be from his contact with the ring? Maybe, um, but I, I am doubtful. I think that it is primarily his, um, I think that it's primarily, uh, his wound that is, uh, that is leading to this. But again, you'll notice the role that that plays here. Notice again, the contact, the, the context, right? The context is. The contrast, right? The massive pointed contrast between Glorfindel and the Black Rider that they were fearing and expecting, right? At every point, he is as opposite from the what they were. You know, the the presence of a horse is the only of, of horse and rider is the only similarity between what they're actually seeing and what um uh, and and what uh, and what they were afraid of before, right? But again, notice just as. Uh, Frodo before, you know, he, he, he earlier when he was wearing the ring had the experience of being able to see on the other side, right. To see the true forms, uh, of the ring wraiths. And since his wounding, now he's being drawn more and more. We can see, and this is, I think one of the first times that I think we begin to see clearly that fact. I don't want to take that for granted, right? It's one of those things which is explained later on, but Help me remember. 
based on Frodo's symptoms, that as they have been, again, if we knew nothing but to this point in the text, what evidence do we have of the exact sort of spiritual effect of this wound on Frodo? We know it is uh, causing pain in his side, right? Um, we know that it's weakening his arm. We know that it's sort of darkening his visions and like the faces of his uh, companions are becoming harder to see like shadows, right? Um do we have, yeah, the, there's there's this, uh, uh, like we about, as you say, the sort of uh, uh, veil or mist over his eyes, um, the cold. Um, his he, he feels cold. I don't think, do we have evidence yet of uh, in Sam's testimony that his hand is cold to the touch from outside comes later, right? I don't think we have that evidence yet. But um, anyway, my point is, it's easy for us to kind of project backwards because we already know the explanation that Gandalf is going to give right later on. But that's, um, uh, that's not, we, we don't have that yet. Right. Um, we've seen, we, we have seen Frodo, um, you know, looking at the ring wraiths, right. Seeing the ring wraiths when he has the ring on, but we have, I don't think we have yet had any cause to connect what's happening to him as a result of his wound with what happens to him when he puts on the ring, right? Um, perhaps those two things are here for the first time being suggested. Indirectly, right? Because what he's perceiving from Gorfindel, it's not exactly the same thing, nor is he having anything quite like the experience that he had under Weathertop when he sees the riders for the first time. Um, but I think it's one of the first times, again, even that stuff about like a, a veil over his vision and the faces of his uh, companions seeming gray and, and, uh, and faint. That's just a testimony. Like his vision is failing. Conceive of I me. Mean, he could, he could merely be, um, you know, sort of weakening and uh, like shadows are overtaking his sight. Um, you know, he could be, moving towards uh you know towards blindness on his way to death conceivably right um based on the descriptions we don't really know i think um have we had any evidence before this time of him actually perceiving like we we've had sort of negative evidence right of the things he was having a hard time seeing uh in contrast to what he um uh to what he could see before have we had any evidence yet of him being able to see something that others couldn't, right? An active, positive sight, right? I don't recall anything. Let me know if you remember anything from any of the previous passages I could be forgetting. Um, but I think this is the first example of that, um, which is therefore a really important piece of evidence, right? That we begin to see for the first time. Frodo is not just dying. He's not just poisoned. Um, he is being changed and we only have one model for this. And that is Gandalf's description of what would happen to a mortal who kept a ring of power, right? The idea of being drawn into the spirit world of being turned into a wraith. Um, and Frodo's own joking words, right? About, um, you know, the thinning process going on indefinitely. Um, or he'll become a wraith, you know, that joke, which, uh, Aragorn thought was a pretty bad idea, as you'll recall. Um, you know, that's, um, this is the, this is the first time I think 
that we can see those two things associated. And, and therefore, I think it's really important. Now, of course, it also tells us something about Glorfindel. Now, we have to be careful because we don't have lots of really good data yet. Um, that is to say, we know that Frodo now see, perceives this in Glorfindel. Um, we don't have, um, uh, you know, I, there's no control uh, to this particular uh, experiment. Like, if, you know, uh, Gildor were to show up, would he be glowy? As right? Would there be a white light shining uh, through his form and raiment as well? You know, what about Legolas, right? What about Elrond, right? How would we uh, sort this out, right? Um, we don't know. We don't get those kinds of uh, of insights here yet. So we don't know how, like, basically, is this telling us information just about Glorfindel, or is this telling us information mostly about Frodo? In some ways, I think it's that that latter seems to me a really important emphasis here, which, again, I take by the recollection of his name. To Frodo, it appeared that a white light was shining through the form and raiment of the rider, right? Does it... And, and yeah, clearly, clearly both, Luke, I agree. Um, it's not that we have to choose between those two, right? It tells us something really important about Glorfindel, but it also gives us a really important insight, uh, and as I think for the first time, uh, into Frodo here. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I know we do get it explained later on, but again, I want to focus on this as it's developing here. Um, because it's, it's part of one of the, to me, it's one of the big, um, it's one of the big, uh, perks that we get in doing the kind of close reading that we're doing uh, in exploring the Lord of the Rings um, is I want to make sure that we're kind of seeing thinking about the effect of um, the effect of the text, right? The effect of going through the text, not just what can, what sense can we make of this in the light of all the things that we learn later. There are moments, of course, when I indulge in that, right? Um, but I really want to uh, to be looking at this not in the context of those things exclusively, but really just making sure that we're focusing on where the story has brought us here. In particular, looking at the the kind of narrative impact uh, that uh, the, the the storytelling is making here. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Evil Doctor Cannon points out that Galadriel would glow, but Celeborn wouldn't. Oh man, way to rub it in, Evil Doctor Cannon. Um, okay. Uh, through the form and raiment of the rider. Is the word raiment used anywhere else in the Lord of the Rings? I don't remember it. Yes, it is. Wait. Um... someone identifies somebody by their raiment it does come up but not that often how many times can somebody do a quick search and tell me how many times the word raiment used in her raiment glimmering okay that's in a poem that's good that's good yeah yeah 13 times total okay okay how many times is it used by the narrator it's used in a poem. It's used in dialogue. Right? Um, okay. 
here's here's why I'm asking. Um, that phrase, through the form and raiment of the rider, uh, is. Okay, I'm remembering the quote that was that popped into my head when I was thinking of it. Um, uh, er, uh, when Aragorn and Amir are meeting for the first time, strange too is your raiment. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Luke, you only find three times when the narrator uses it. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, oh, but hang on a second. Is that uh, is that Arwen description? That's in the appendix, right? Doesn't count. Doesn't count. No way. No way. I don't count that. Has to be in the main text of the Lord of the Rings itself, not in the appendices. The appendices are, and I exclude those because it's a different tone, right? It's a different kind of uh, performance. Oh, that, that that's in the main text. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. That's fair. It counts. It counts. Um, Winfrodo Caesar. Okay, cool, cool. Um, Here's what I'm clumsily trying to get at. That sentence has always struck me. My ear tells me that sentence is different. Um, That it's... It elevates the tone. I don't think it's just the word raiment. Again, it's that phrase, through the form and raiment of the rider. Um, uh, there's a kind of... Okay, it, it's. It, there's a rhetorical elevation there. Kimber, exactly. It feels more like the Silmarillion. Um, it does, uh, the narrator strives for something higher. It just, there's, there's a kind of, of archaism, a kind of formality, uh, to that whole construction, which even more than the description that we've already had, suddenly into view below came a white horse gleaming in the shadows, running swiftly. In the dusk, its headstall flickered and flashed, as if it were studded with gems like living stars. The rider's cloak streamed behind him, and his hood was thrown back. His golden hair flowed shimmering in the wind of his speed. To Frodo it appeared that a white light was shining through the form and raiment of the rider, as if through a thin veil. Um, Notice we get the whole passage is poetical, Right. We notice that uh, we get a lot of um, a lot of euphony of sound here. Right. With uh, uh, alliteration. Right. Uh, flickered and flashed. Right. The head stalls flickering and flashed. Notice even the stru- the sentence structure. Right. Um, a white horse gleaming in the shadows, running swiftly. Right. The gleaming and the running parallel. Um the flickered and flashed in the next sentence as if it were studded with gems like living stars, right? The simile to living stars. Uh, the simile, again, notice uh, this is like a very, very short version of that Goldberry simile, right? Um, comparing a familiar thing 
um, the headstall of a horse to something that we have never seen before. I've never seen a living star, not in the way that I think he's describing it. Right. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, so again, like it's, uh, uh, but you know, this beautiful simile right at the end, um, um, his cloak streamed behind him and his hood was thrown back. His golden hair flowed shimmering in the wind of his speed. Uh, again, the, 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 the parallel structure of the sentence, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's elegant. The whole passage, right? He's reflecting in his prose style here, the, the beauty, the elegance, the, uh, the, the, I mean, this, we've got to bring in Gorfindel fittingly, right? And yet it seems to me, um, that that last sentence shining through the form and raiment of the rider, as if through a thin veil is up, um, one level higher, right? Um, I can't believe by the way, that nobody has, uh, suggested the other kind of parallel here. Um, Bruce, I agree. The form of the rider, the form and raiment of the rider, not the body, not the skin, right? Nothing like that. The form of the rider, um, which does suggest Zephan, or, uh, sorry, not Zephan, uh, Bruce, that, um, it's almost like the real Gorfindel is somehow hidden behind the physical being that we see. It's just, it's, it's just the form that he's in right now. Um, yeah, that, that word choice is interesting in that way. Um, uh, Yeah, good. Uh, Fourth Dauntless says um, the description of the elves in the Shire changes register as well. Maybe it's the narrator trying to capture that experience of seeing an elf, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't believe we've had nobody mention the biblical parallel. Right? This is a Bible reference, too. The other thing that form and raiment always makes me think of here. Parallel? You guys are usually, several of you are usually pretty good on these. I can't believe nobody mentioned it yet. No, not angels. Moses, kind of, but Moses shines. It's more like reflected light from Moses' face, right? Yeah, Moses comes down from the mountain and they're like, turn off the high beams, right? Um, but, uh, um, no, no, got it. Got it. Uh, Gray Eileen there on uh, the Twitch chat. Yes. The Transfiguration, or uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Yeah, what I always think of uh, when I come to this passage. Um, that moment when, you know, uh, 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 Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus and he is transfigured before them and the white light, you know, his, his, his clothing is, is white, whiter than any fuller could white them, uh, as the, the, the gospel uh, writers rather adorably uh, point out. Uh, and again, uh, white light is radiating from him as they're given this glimpse of, you know, sort of his true being, you know, his, they see, you know, Jesus uncloaked right up on the mountain there. Um, now I don't necessarily like 
<laughs> JJ says Moses was present. I'm claiming partial credit. Okay, fine. Partial credit. Yes. Moses was also involved as Moses also does show up. Um, but, um, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not, uh, um, I'm not going to, I, I don't do too much with it, right? I, I don't know exactly where to go with it, other than just that we have this kind of precedent, right? Um, this precedent of the the white light shining through the form and raiment as being associated with this sort of perception of a cloaked truth, right? Um, I... Yeah, and Mad Violinist, you are absolutely right. Gandalf is going to have something like this after his return, yes. Uh, the, uh, Gandalf is going to be Gandalf the White, not just because like he's been promoted. It's not just like being promoted from your brown belt to your black belt in karate when he ceases to be the gray and becomes the white. Gandalf is the white because he can't help it, right? I mean, he's just... He's just... It shines through, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> Carita, uh, yeah, Glorfindel is Jesus. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the conclusion I'm trying to lead to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, Finn, we don't know for sure. I mean, he doesn't say that the other hobbits don't see this, but I think it's pretty clear that only Frodo is seeing this. Again, the emphasis to Frodo, it appeared, right? Um, I think that's, that that's, that that's pretty clear. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll see, um, we'll see, uh, we'll see this happening. Now, let me address one of the questions that you guys were talking about like an hour and a half ago, uh, in the, in, in the discord chat. So is this the Gorfindel from the Silmarillion? This is a really interesting question, actually. Glorfindel, he is a transitional character, right? So we've talked about the passage that I get all excited about, right? That moment, uh, which we can see when we, when we were doing the Return of the Shadow class, that moment that we saw, which is super exciting, that moment when I am pretty convinced, like in the writing of this one sentence, you can see the moment when the firewall between this fairy tale that he's writing and the, um, uh, the, 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 the legendarium that he'd been working on for decades comes down, right? When he ceases to be borrowing material from those stories to use in his story, like he did throughout the Hobbit. Um, and when he decides, no, that world is this world is the ancient history of this world. Um, I'm going to incorporate these two things together. Glorfindel, is the very first instance of this that we get. So right after he does, and of course that, that, that sentence, in case you don't remember that the sentence in question is, you know, I shall tell you the tale of Tenuviel, uh, right. When Trotter says that, um, uh, so anyway, um, so the very first thing that comes up, the very first, Silmarillion crossover. The the first thing that comes into the the text in Tolkien's drafts, um, which is clearly non-recycled material from the Silmarillion, right? Clearly him 
uh, bringing that stuff in historically is this stuff like what he immediately goes on to write after the like Tenuvio breakthrough that happens there is the Last Alliance stuff with uh, with Elrond, you know, that uh, uh, Gilgalad and all those things. Those had been present earlier on in the draft and when they had been present back at Weathertop or no, because it is at Weathertop earlier on when they were approaching, um, there were references to um, when when, Stry- when Trotter at the time had been explaining about Weathertop and what it is and what the significance of it was, um, th- that was still recycled material, right? It was it wasn't the Last Alliance, right? So he immediately is like, oh yeah, and he starts working through the Last Alliance and Gilgalad, and now we're incorporating that whole story in. The meeting with Glorfindel happens afterwards. The character of Glorfindel is brought in after the shift. Right after he lets the uh, the 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 firewall down, right between this story and the Silmarillion material, but I am pretty thoroughly convinced that he was still like old habits are hard to break. I think Gorfindel is still recycled. Um, this was not the original plan, right? When he first writes this scene, when Gorfindel first comes on the scene. Um, I am quite convinced that he is not identifying this character in the Fellowship of the Ring with the uh, golden-haired Glorfindel who died fighting the Balrog in the mountains above Gondolin. Um, I think that at the moment that he wrote this scene, he was he was. This is like Glorfindel is like the last recycled character. After this, he's out of the habit, right? And he doesn't do it again. I don't see any evidence that he ever, ever did it again in any of his future writings. Like, well, again, the firewall came down and he's comfortable with it. But he gets to this scene almost right after he uh, he, he does that. And it, he's still he's still recycling, I think. Um, Gorfindel is, is, uh, Gorfindel is recycled. Um, he decides later that he's going to be the same. Um, but that's not a decision that he makes like the idea that Gorfindel has returned from the dead and has come back to middle earth alone, um, alone of all of the, um, uh, of, of the elves in like history, you know, that they should emerge from Mandos and, you know, go back into general circulation is not unknown. Um, but never have they come back to middle earth afterwards. And how does he get, to Middle-earth, exactly. I mean, does he get a one-man crossing of the Helcarax? So he's got to work it out, and of course, eventually, he's like, okay, he hitched a ride with the Astari, right? He came over in the boat, uh, you know, with Gandalf and Saruman and the rest of them, right? Um, so he he definitely um, was... Um, uh, he, he definitely was deciding, but this is much later on. Um, after long after the publication of the Lord of the Rings, he's decided, okay, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna unrecycle Glorfindel, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take that Glorfindel character and I'm gonna actually make him identical with the Glorfindel character uh, from the Silmarillion, and I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna make the 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 story, uh, you know, explain it by saying, oh, like he was still like devoted to the the offspring of, of, uh, of Tuor and Idril, right? So he's come back to hang with Elrond, right? And to look after, you know, the, the sort of the last children, you know, grandchildren of, uh, 
uh, of, you know, his close friends, Idro and Tuor. It's okay, right? Um, now, I see you guys talking about recycling elf names. It's true that there are like three different elves named Rumil, but again, those, I think, Tony, are revisions. Um, and when he's kind of shifting things around. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah, Bruce, we'll, we'll, we'll get to what's there in, in, in many meetings. I'm not going to worry about that right now. We don't have that data yet. Um, all we have is what we have here, but, but I, I, I did want to address that. So, um, if you ask me, is this Gorfindel the same as the Gorfindel in the Silmarillion, then I will give you an elf-like answer and say both no and yes, right? Yes, Tolkien decided in retrospect that it was, and he retconned this Gorfindel to be that Gorfindel. Was it when Tolkien wrote this passage? No, I, not, not at all. Um, and Tolkien had to make the decision, um, later on again to to come up with a story of how that could possibly happen because it's i mean it's in many ways it's an awkward recycling right because like Gorfindel of the Silmarillion is awkwardly dead right and i mean yeah okay he's an elf he's over in fountain but again like how does he get back to middle earth what on earth is he doing here right how can that be explained he has to go um he has to go pretty far, uh, pretty far out of his way, uh, in order to do that. Um, Tony, you're right. He does re, uh, uh, recycle the word Rumil, uh, for Haldir's brother. Um, uh, but, um, but you know, Tony, I'm my guess. If I had to guess there, I think that the reason he reuses the word Rumil for Haldir's brother is that he was already contemplating cutting Rumil from the legendarium Rumil was like his stock had been going down you know uh uh he had uh sorry i'm using metaphors from um uh sp- sports drafts here um Rumil was uh was trending down definitely trending down um he was a major figure in the book of lost tales um but had been decreasing in significance i think later on he decided tolkien decided to keep rumil uh and so of course we still get rumil uh as a minor reference in uh in the published silmarillion but i would bet tony that in the moment that he decides that haldir's brother in lothlorien is named rumil he was he was deciding to to scratch rumil uh the noldo and um and then later on decided to unscratch him, and now there are two of them. So, anyhow. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, see, Trifle, actually, Legolas and Glorfindel are really interesting... Um, are a really interesting pairing, right? Because on the one hand, both of them are recycled Gondolin characters. Legolas was a Gondolin character, um, just like... Uh, oops. Uh just like Orfindel was, um, you know, the sharp-eyed Legolas Greenleaf um, who helps to guide them. You know, again, this is that's straight from the Book of Lost Tales version of the Fall of Gondolin. However, um, he goes a different way, right? And that is to say, how does he handle that one? Easy. He cuts Legolas out of Gondolin, right? Um, and so therefore makes Legolas uh, uh, sort of... So he... Instead of uh, just recycling the old Legolas concept for the new character here, he he like transplants him, in fact, um, and removes him. But uh, yeah, 
Um, yes, Lincoln Legolas is called Greenleaf. That the name Legolas Greenleaf, uh, 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 Goadriel calls him that in the verses that uh, are sent to Legolas from from Gandalf. So yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, okay. Uh, so. It's okay, I think, for us to think both in terms of the no and yes, right? It's perfectly legal uh, for us to think about Glorfindel as we're as we're seeing the character of Glorfindel developing here. Um, it's okay for us to think about this in the knowledge of what Tolkien was going to retcon later on, right? To think of this as the, you know, re... I don't want to say reincarnated because that has some different associations. Reembodied. Let's go with that. Reembodied Glorfindel um, uh, from from the first age. But I would want to be careful. The thing in particular that I would want to be careful about is it should at least be a point of interest to us that Tolkien did not have that in mind when he wrote this. So if you're tempted to say, hey, Glorfindel glows white because he returned from the dead, right? This, that's a returning from the dead thing, right? I'm not saying you're wrong, right? That may well be that, you know, there, there, there is a correlation with that, right? Gandalf is also notably glowy when he returns from the dead, right? Um, however, it, it wasn't the initial concept, right? Um, when there's when this glowy elf uh, lord comes riding down the road the first time he's already glowing and he's not reembodied yet at that point. Um, so um, so again, it, it's at Finn. I agree. It is awesome to think of him as the same Gorfindel because I love that. Um, I love that uh, that character in the Silmarillion, and it's you know thinking about thinking about that longer story, that much more quirky and interesting story of like, hey, so like this dude that they meet on the road and who plays this one small role uh, in The Lord of the Rings turns out to be this like massively interesting and important character, right? Kind of cool, but not um, uh, not not sort of necessary. So anyway, see, I, I think we need to kind of hold in suspension the two different things. They both work and it's cool, but um, uh but uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> Johanna says it's the rule of cool. If it's cool, it's canon. You know, uh, there's an argument to be made along those lines. I definitely, uh, I, I certainly, um, um, <laughs> I certainly tend to think that way myself fairly often. Um, yeah, cool. All right, I have an idea. Let's do another slide. Because why not? Strider sprang from hiding and dashed down towards the road, leaping with a cry through the heather. But even before he had moved or called, the rider had reined in his horse and halted, looking up towards the thicket where they stood. When he saw Strider, he dismounted and ran to meet him, calling out, "'I, Navedwi, Dunadan, my Govanan!' His speech and clear ringing voice left no doubt in their hearts. The rider was of the elven folk." No others that dwelt in the wide world had voices so fair to hear. But there seemed to be a note of haste or fear in his call, and they saw that he was now speaking quickly and urgently to Strider. Soon Strider beckoned to them, and the hobbits left the bushes and hurried down to the road. This is Glorfindel, who dwells in the house of Elrond, said Strider. 
Okay. There you go, Tony. We actually get his name, right? Finally. Um, okay. So I love the fact that um, uh, Gorfindel knows just where they are, right? And I... So, I mean, I said mostly in jest in my subtitle that Glorfindel smells hobbits. Uh, but of course, if he did, it would be a really funny joke, right? A really complex joke. Combining on the one hand, the sniffing of the ringwraiths, right? Uh, that we got in the uh, earlier segments in the, in three is company with the smelling of elves by Bilbo, right? You know, that if uh, the elves smell hobbit right back, right? Um, that that's um, pretty awesome. Right. I think that would be really funny. There's no real evidence, of course, that Gorfindel is smelling them on the wind. And that's why he stopped. Does he just sense them? What does he sense? Whom does he sense? Is it is it like Aragorn that he senses? Is it Frodo that he senses? Is it the ring that he senses? Is it Frodo's wound that he senses? Um, what is it exactly that uh, that leads him to stop? I'm not really sure exactly. Um We don't get any evidence. I wish I, we got a little bit more about like what he. So we just said that he's looking up towards the thicket where they stood. Um, like what expression is on his face? Is he looking alarmed, concerned, glad, a look of joy on his face? Um, that would tell me a lot more. That would give me more evidence, right, about how he had detected them. Because if he's sensing the ring of power, he can't be looking with a look of joy. I mean, I guess maybe indirectly, right? Um but um, Carita says the horse senses Bill. Now that is quite likely. Asphaloth, I'm sure, can smell Bill. Um, so, you know, maybe it's, uh, of course, not Gorfindel uh, sniffing them out, uh, but uh, Asphaloth himself. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. I could believe that. And that, you know, Asphaloth is able to communicate. See, now, I have no problems with this. I have no problems with Asphaloth being able to communicate what he detects from a distance uh, to Glorfindel immediately. Um, by the way, on this subject, two different horse people have gotten in touch with me and argued that they do think that the uh, steeds of the Black Riders could have alerted them to the crossing of the road. I'm willing to go with it. The, the the problem that I had was the idea of them like essentially posting their horses as lookouts, you know, which seemed to me implausible. But again, horse people, uh, uh, two different horse people have contacted me and pointed out horses are so like dedicated, uh, you know, herd animals that if a horse sees another horse, so it's probably not the hobbits, uh, it's Bill who gives them away, right? Uh, that when, if a black rider's horse was able to see another horse crossing the road, even miles in the distance, it would respond. It would, it would uh, take note and thus potentially alert the black rider that there was something there, right? And that could lead to the crying out, at least, uh, you know, we don't know what the words were in the cry, right? Um, it, it needn't be like, there they, you know, there she blows. It could just be uh, something more like, you know, uh, you know, hey, be on the lookout. You know, something's moving. Um, anyway, so just um, uh, I, I wanted to I, 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 maybe maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer to the mystery. But again, I have no manner of objection to the kind of intimacy of of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of mental connection, a mental and emotional connection between Glorfindel and Asphaloth. Right. That's um, that. Uh, 
that's easy for me to swallow where the same thing exactly going on with the black riders and their horses was a little harder. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. And I agree, Zephan, uh, he doesn't dismount and start running toward them until he sees them. Um, so he detects them. Maybe he heard them. Maybe Asphaloth smells them. Maybe he smells them. Again, the thing, the question that interests me is, does he think this is good news or bad news? Right. There's somebody there. Um, I would, um, I would kind of, I would find it really fascinating if, and this is wild speculation, um, with no manner of evidence possible, if Glorfindel detects the effect of the wound, like that, that there's got to be some, you know, bad spiritual mojo coming off of Frodo here, right? Between the presence of the ruling ring and uh, the infection, right, with the will of the Witch King and, and you know, and his his uh, his wound, which is uh, enslaving him and taking him, uh, uh, you know, drawing him into the Wraith world. Gorfindel's got to be able to detect that, right? I mean, surely he's got to be able to detect that. I don't know if he can detect it from the distance in the bushes, right? But uh, but I wonder, I wonder. Um, but in any case, we definitely... Um, we definitely know that he doesn't totally get what they are until he sees Strider. And again, that's why it would fit. Well, again, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not arguing that that's necessarily the truth, that he's detecting something like that. There's something funny. There, there's something not right hiding up in those bushes there. Um, but it would, ma- it would make sense of um, why he dismount. He only dismounts and runs to meet them when he, uh, when he sees Strider, right. When Strider starts, uh, starts running towards them. Um, because he is, uh, 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 but again, it, it would fit, right? If his, his first thought is, um, you know, maybe he's thinking there's a Nazgul hiding up there could just as well be right. I mean, if there were like a single Nazgul keeping watch on this road, you think it would like ditch into the bushes <laughs> if it heard Corfindel coming? I think it would. Right. So, you know, it could very well be, um, now you're right, Mad Violinist. He doesn't react to the wound until Sam points it out. Well, let's wait until we see that. We're almost there. Well, not that we're going to get there this week, but let's let's wait and see. But Mad Violinist, remind me of this wild theory that I'm hatching here. Um, uh, let me put it this way: I think that my wild theory that he's actually detecting something. Like, you know, there is something rotten in the state of that patch of heather up there. Uh, the reason I suspect that maybe that's his first reaction is, um, uh, oh, shoot. I, I originally had a way to finish that sentence. What was it that was leading me? to? Th- oh, yeah. Because if he if he's actually smelling hobbits, right, um, then presumably he would have been like down off his horse and running towards them sooner. Right. He it, This would have been. uh this would have been uh, a happy reunion from the beginning. I don't think he would have paused. Um, the fact that he sort of looks and waits, and then as soon as he... It's not until he sees Strider that he goes running. Yeah, weak, I know. Totally weak support. But there it is. Um, maybe he's smelling Bill, too. Yeah, I, the, 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 the idea, if he, either he or Asphaloth or both detect that there's, you know an equine creature in those bushes, right? Either they hear him or they smell him. Um, 
you know, it's definitely uh, uh, that, you know, again, that could be that could be Nazgul or uh, or hobbits. Do they even know that the hobbits have a horse? Why would they? Right. It's unlikely that the hobbits would have been. Well, the hobbits were originally riding ponies um, uh, before they lost their ponies. So maybe I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, I love the speculations about what hobbits smell like. Uh, Emma Thorne, I kind of like the, uh, 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 bacon and eggs theory. Yeah. That seems to me, um, worthwhile. Um, fourth Dauntless. I think that is also a really interesting point. Um, this is Gorfindel who dwells in the house of Elrond. Uh, Fourth Thoughtless is interested in that particular introduction. Right? Pipeweed, Luke, they might smell like pipeweed. That's, uh, that's, that's another good theory. Um, uh, Gorfindel who dwells in the house of Elrond. Um, Fourth Thoughtless is interested in the fact that he doesn't say this is Gorfindel from Rivendell. Right? Um, why say the House of Elrond? Like Rivendell, Fourth Dauntless is saying that Rivendell has been the, you know, the goal, the destiny. They've been talking about reaching Rivendell. It's our only way. You know, the Ford is our only way to Rivendell. They've been talking about Rivendell. So he, it would be kind of natural for him to say, "This is Glorfindel, who dwells in Rivendell." Right. Um, so you know, he's like part of the welcoming committee, but instead he kind of goes one step more formal. Right who dwells in the house of Elrond. Um, and Tony, it does begin to sound a little bit, um, I don't want to say political exactly, but a little bit more formal, right? Like it's not just about saying who dwells in the house of Elrond is not just giving you his mailing address, right? He's, telling you something about him, right? He is affiliated with Elrond uh, in some way. Tilian, it is a bit stately, right? There's This is something of a formal introduction uh, on Aragorn's part. Um, you know, he would call him Glorfindel, son of somebody, son of somebody else, if you ever really introduced elves that way, which they, which they don't, right? Um, uh, so instead, uh, you'll remember that... Um, Gildor introduced himself by saying, remember Frodo's question to Gildor, who are you and who is your lord, right? Frodo seems to know that that kind of association is what counts among elves, especially among the high elves, right? Um, so, uh, um, so yeah, I, I, that, that seems to be um, the direction that Strider is going here, right? He's associated with Elrond himself, right? Um, Catriona says Gorfindel isn't one of the Tralalalali elves in Rivendell. No, I think Gildor was one of the Tralalalali elves. I said this at the time, right? If you look at the way that Gildor and the other elves with him interact with Frodo and the Hobbits, they interact exactly in the same tone and with exactly the same brand of humor that the Tralalalali elves. Uh, uh, employ, right? I am 100% convinced that Gildor and Glorian is one of the elves singing that he was there, you know, helping to lead the chorus of the Tralalalali here down in the valley song uh, in The Hobbit. No question. Was Glorfindel there too? Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't he be? Right? 
Gildor was obviously there. But Gorfindel? What is it? You think he has too much dignity? Come on, man. Right? Like, what's wrong with a little tra-la-la-lolly? Right? I, 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 you know, I don't see any reason to think that Gorfindel wasn't there. I think that any assumption that you have that Gorfindel wasn't there says something about what the tra-la-la-lolly elves mean to you, right? It, it, it's one of the things that I think, uh, I don't know that Tolkien really changes that. I don't know. I, I, I just, again, Gildor suggests to me that they don't. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I see, Finn, like, why not? Why wouldn't, you know, an elf who had been through what he's been through and has lived as long as he have, why wouldn't they be, wouldn't you could, I, I, I could easily make the argument that he'd be more likely to be singing tra la 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 than, than, than others. Right. Totally. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, and, and this is the thing to remember, even in the Hobbit, right. Even in the Hobbit, um, the Hobbit is much, much more simple about this. Like it's, it's, it's much more kind of black and white, right? Like the elves who live in Rivendell are high elves, right? And the elves who live uh, in Mirkwood are wood elves, right? Um, so the Hobbit suggests that the Tra-la-la-lolly song is an older thing, exactly as Tony says. I, I you know, that's, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good, man. <laughs> what do you have against singing tra la la lolly? Um uh it's um it's cool. yeah, Tarloniel says, Can you imagine any of the elves in the movies uttering the words tra la la lolly? You know, Tarloniel, no, I can't. But honestly, it's one of the limitations. It's one of the weaknesses, I think. You know You know that whole facial expression that Peter Jackson's elves do, like Hal Deer and you know that like ineffable like you know, I am solemn and like that, like non-smiling kind of like I am deep and wise expression that they're always pulling. Right. Come on, man. Like that is not, like I get it. I get it. And I don't dislike the effect completely that is done in the films. But, you know, yeah, the alas face. That's a good characterization, Valori. Um but yeah, Tolkien's elves don't take themselves as seriously as that. Even Galadriel doesn't take herself quite as seriously as that, I think, in the book. Um, now, I get that. And I, think, I do think that Peter Jackson picks up on how a lot of people tend to think of the elves, right? I, I, I think that that's the association a lot of people have. Um, again, I think, I think he's, not, he's not out of line. I think he's in touch with... Um, the majority of Tolkien readers uh, in envisioning his elves that way. Um, and that's what yeah, Tony says. The elves in the films are basically Vulcans. Yeah, almost. Right. Um, but again, I, this is why I believe that this is why um, uh, so many people dislike the tra la la elves. Right. And find them just discordant with Tolkien's elves. Um, but to me, it's not discord, right? It is a crucial element, right? You've got to be an elf means to, you know, tease dwarves and, you know, sing about the river flowing and bannocks baking and to sing about barrels plumping into the water. Like, it's what you do, right? Um, and I think that's 
you know, it's at least part of the picture and we need to reconcile ourselves to it. So just work as, you know, sort of therapeutically try to imagine Glorfindel <laughs> taking, taking part, right? Uh, Arden Crayon uh, in on Twitter says he always pictured Elrond as as a Sarek Spock's father. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Very tempting, right? Very tempting. Um, yeah. Uh, so try to imagine, try to imagine Legolas singing the Rolling the Barrel Down the Hole song, right? Try to imagine Gorfindel singing the Tralalalali song. Think. Try to think of Gorfindel. Um, singing under Bilbo's window, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the hilarious lullaby song uh, that they sing at the end, right? I mean, come on. Gorfindel would have been in on that. Surely Gorfindel would have been in on that. Why would he not? Oh, man. Yeah, so um, as Tillian says, if you can't find joy and mirth in the world, why are you here? Sail into the West. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um yeah, and Tony, I agree. It is helpful to remember that elves and fairies are basically the same, and it is a lot easier to imagine fairies singing and being uh, and being jolly. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, Evil Doctor Cannon says anyone who likes bling that much would totally be into silly songs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think about it, right? Even the Somebody who we were suggesting earlier that by um, by putting the jingle bells right on the you know using the headstall with the bright flashy jewels which are going to show up in the dark and the jingle bells on the one hand he's making himself both visible and audible uh, to. Uh, uh, friendly bystanders, right? So that in case those who are in the wilderness whom he is seeking see him, they might, you know, come to him. Um, but in addition, uh, it, it, you know, we were talking about it as being like a warning for the for the Nazgul. But come on, somebody who decides they are going to announce like whose walk up music is going to be the jingling of little bells, right? Be afraid. Be very afraid. Here I come jingling and clippity-clipping my way along, right? Come on. Surely somebody who would think that way would sing tra la la lolly, right? I mean, clearly. Clearly. Um, yeah. Yeah, JJ, that's an excellent point. You know, hobbits are great warriors, and what is more deadly to the enemy than laughter and merriment? We do have to keep in mind the spiritual element of the battle, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I am not sure. I what? Just ask yourself, what would the Nazgul do if a bunch of Noldor showed up and started singing the Tralalalali song? Right, I there I think would be real power in that song. I know it's a silly song, right? But uh, but of course, thinking that it's a silly song is also a very silly thing to think. So, um, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Zephan. Uh, Tralalalali is an elvish battle cry, right? Leave it to the Rohirrim to shout death, right? That's not that's not how the elves roll. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Aruaran says uh, it uh, uh, reminds him of uh, Bombadil singing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Tom Bombadil also not high on personal dignity when it comes to his song, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, Crystal Knight, you are right. The bells are important, right? Um, uh, you know, the, the ringing of bells. Well, except, of course, there's an awkward thing, Crystal, about the ringing of bells, right? Um, what were the ring? Because you know what? The, the ring of bells do help to repel things like werewolves, but you know who else they repel, according to, tradi- you know, to folk tradition? fairies right so that's you know can be kind of awkward actually um which is yeah which but but yeah fairies too of course like the non the unfriendly kinds of fairies um uh and there are some traditions that will say that uh fairies can be killed uh by the sound of bells um anyway yeah, and but Oakwig, yeah, we, but but I, I'm not, of course, suggesting that you know there's any risks to elves, uh, and obviously Glorfindel is not having a problem with this. Um, but 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 you're right, the 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 significance of bells is more than just that they make a happy tinkling sound, um, uh, according to uh, to traditions. And um, Oakwig, you absolutely are correct that we should be remembering about Tolkis laughing uh, in battle as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Okay. I hope I I, I hope I, I've helped us work through this. Right. Uh, let's all do let's, let's all do our our tralalalali uh, thought experiment. Right. To try to acclimate ourselves to this uh, um, to this uh, to this concept. I, I think it's important. Um, yeah. <laughs> Dime says she thinks that Aeol could have used some bells. Uh, yeah, exactly. Aeol is a great example of an elf who clearly needed a little bit more tra-la-la-la-li in his life. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, yeah, good. Um, excellent. Okay. Um, we should stop there okay so we're gonna three slides i'm feeling winded i don't know about you we got through what was that like six paragraphs oh my goodness it was six entire paragraphs tonight that's uh i'm feeling faint um so (laughs) so let's let's stop there here we did get to his name dime so there we are um we're going to stop here. Of course, sadly, uh, we're stopping uh, for quite some time. We're coming up into the holidays here, and the holidays fall awkwardly uh, 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 onto the Tuesdays uh, this year. Um, so, yeah, fortunately, Bruce, we are going to have a couple of weeks to catch our breath. Uh, so, of course, next week, next Tuesday is Christmas Day. Shockingly, I'm going to be busy on Christmas Day. Um, and the week after that is New Year's Day, and I'm going to be still traveling with my family. I may be home, eh, but I might not. I'm not really sure. Um, so um, uh, we're going to... Um, uh, so we'll have to take off both of the next two weeks, which means our next class will be on the 8th of um, uh, of uh, of January. So on the uh, January 8th, we shall return with more Gorfindel, and we will actually get the conversation between uh, Gorfindel and Frodo. So yeah, the that 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 business about um, 
uh, Glorfindel and Frodo's wound, uh, Mad Violinist will have to hang on to that, you know, for uh, uh, for a few weeks, and we'll and we'll come back. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Uh, we're going to do our field trip now, but I'm going to say uh, good night to the folks on Twitter. Uh, thanks for joining me there, and we're going to we're going to. Uh, resume our field tripping so feel free to join us on twitch twitch.tv slash signum you so good night twitter folks thanks for joining me all right good evening everyone yes <laughs> okay, i was looking see. forward to this one okay jingle elves jingle elves jingle <laughs> all the way <laughs> yes um yeah, I was trying to uh, in my Twitch notification. I was trying to rhyme uh, uh, "jingle bells" and "smells like elves," but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I was wholly successful there. Uh, I think what what did I end up putting? Uh, "Jingle bells, smells like elves." Glorfindel's on his way. It's close. It's not. It's not quite there. It's, it's, it's not bad. I'll, I'll give you that one. It's, it's not terrible, yes. but. At least you yeah. didn't mess with the meter. It's not like those night before Christmas car commercials. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. That's yeah. yeah. Um, okay, cool. So we're going to head off tonight uh, and uh, we're going to go back to the troll shots. We're going to go south and go towards Tal Bruin in here today. And I think my theory uh, looking at maps is that what, what I would expect is that we are going to not be seeing Arnorian ruins anymore. We should get to some 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 <laughs> outside the bounds of old Arnor now. So that's kind of fun. Um, uh, so anyhow, okay. Um, so let us head out and do that. And yeah, Sharon is reminding me uh, as we go forth here and go back. I think we're just going to still have to gallop from uh, Ostgaruth. Um as we have been doing throughout our Troll Shaw's explorations. Once we get to Rivendell, it'll be a little bit easier. Um, <laughs> For a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Briefly anyway. Well, briefly. It'll take us a little while to go around Rivendell, but... Um, anyway, so... Um, uh, was, oh, yeah, Sharon was remi- reminding me, just to remind folks uh, uh, about our um, Anytime Audit promotion which is still going on so um oh, yeah. uh, we've got had a, a bunch of people who have been we've gotten in this past week a whole bunch of uh sort of last minute gift ideas people who have been ordering uh some of our our special promotion so uh it's uh it's a it's a discount on essentially on all of our anytime audits boy i am lagging like terribly here i keep getting pointed in the wrong direction um, it's winter festival <laughs> yeah, yeah winter festival in brie on landreval hooray um, so yeah, we'll just get out of town here. Anytime audits, right? Anytime audits. Yes. Uh, so, um, uh, $75 for a gift certificate, uh, for any of our anytime audits, any of the courses in our entire, in our entire archive, um, uh, you can, you can get, so you just give the gift certificate and they choose whatever course they want. So you don't have to guess which course they would like most, um, and those are $75 a piece. Normal tuition is $95. So those are $20 off uh, for the holiday. And you can, of course, give the gift certificate to yourself. So it also kind of doubles as like a universal sale on our anytime audits uh, for this time of year as well. So Yeah, yeah. Treat um, yourself. Yeah, You've exactly. 
we've had uh, we've had a couple of people actually in the last couple of days we had uh, two people who just purchased anytime audits through the normal links and we were like you know you could save $20 by clicking this link instead, right? And so we're like, why don't you go do that instead? Uh, You're so good, how man. Can I be <laughs> um, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, just to, uh, to remind folks about that, that's going on through the end of the month. So you've got, uh, uh, you've got just about another week um, for that. So actually, yeah, two weeks actually, but uh, I won't be having as many chances to remind you about that as we move, yeah. as we move forward. So, Okay. All right. All right, we ready to write off? Yes. We got few, yeah, we got some. Yeah, right. Do we yeah. have any stragglers? We might have had. Might have been. I think I was lagging at least as badly as everybody else, so I don't think there are too many people yeah. behind me. Yep, All I right. think we're good. Okay, good. Let us. All right. So, Glorfindel is actually probably the only uh, Tolkien character I've actually drawn on several occasions, probably because Rachel is such a huge fan. Remember, <laughs> Rachel's a tangent artist with me. Yes. And, uh, we were talking about how he was coming back, and I was just remembering it, Myth Mood. I think somebody had paid me uh, a beer to draw <laughs> Glorfindel coming back from Valinor on a swan boat with sunglasses and a chain that said Thug Life on it. <laughs> so. It's totally goofy. I think I did it in like five minutes or something. But <laughs> every time we talk about Glorfindel coming back, I just think of that cartoon. <laughs> it's buried somewhere. I don't know where right. it is. But, and that was a very good beer they gave me. So I consider it well worth it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this in the uh, 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 what happens at Mythmoot uh, <laughs> category. <laughs> Yeah, no, man, we put it on the wall. It was great. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, cool. Um, yeah, no, Glorfindel is also fun, of course. You know, Glorfindel has been one of the, you know, so when I used to teach uh, my Tolkien survey um, uh, back at the college, I used to uh, use Glorfindel, of course, as one of, because I used to do my, uh, my, diagnostic exam in the first class just to kind of figure out you know who who I'm talking to like what percentage of the students taking the class were already serious Tolkien geeks because it was just yeah you know good for me to know that before we started um yeah so I always you know I had my diet my diagnostic exam which had three tiers of questions right the first um first tier were like questions that anybody who had even like the sort of a vague familiarity with the text, with the story really would get right. Even yeah. people would only seen the movies. The second tier were deliberately questions that people who had only seen the movies would be guaranteed to get wrong. Yeah. Uh, and the third tier of questions were like super obscure Silmarillion questions, which only like truly dedicated geeks would, would get right. Um, you know, things like how many times did Hurin cry out, day shall come again, you know, at the fens of Sarek, for instance. Oh, man, I don't think I... I, I know, I, right? Hardcore. No. Hardcore. Yeah. Um, uh, so, anyway, um, that's... Uh, um, so, therefore, Glorfindel was definitely one of my... Was always one of my questions in the second tier, right? Seventy second, trifle, you got it. Yes, tier. seventy. Um, the the Gorfindel tier. So of course, you know, one of my questions was, you know, who comes uh, 
you know, to, you know, and meets up with them and helps to, you know, uh, convey Frodo to the Ford of Bruinen. And of course, you know, obviously, you know, if you answer, if you, you will only answer Glorfindel if you've read the books, right? So, um, yeah, exactly. That was one of my, of course, I asked uh, a Tom Bombadil question as well and a Faramir question, um, you know, about, you know, where, uh, what yeah. Faramir does when he finds out that they have the Ring of Power and stuff, you know. It, it, I really also find it interesting questions. in the in the Braff Bakshi animation, the decision to replace Legolas as Glorfindel yeah. meant that he was wearing white the entire time, which was completely nonsensical. Yeah, I mean, basically that it's. I mean, that's that's the one that that seems weirder, right? And I remember we just we just watched the. This was really fun when we were at uh, Middlemoot in Kansas City at the kind of after party after uh, after Middlemoot. Um, you know, we all got together and had dinner and hung out for a while. That's where we did our reenactment. And um, mm. we, um, we, we, we one thing that we did, we didn't get through the entire film, but we watched a whole bunch of the Ralph Bakshi, the, the Ralph Bakshi film together. Um, <laughs> which was really cool. And there were clearly a bunch of people in the crowd who either had never seen it or hadn't seen it in so long that they'd completely forgotten it. Um, and that moment always, you know, there's like a really strong crowd reaction. And the thing that I think is, is most remarkable there is that he, as you say, he looks just like Gorfindel. I mean, so if you've read the book, you're like, Hey, look, it's Gorfindel. Right. And then all of a sudden yes. it's this Gorfindel character who looks exactly as Gorfindel is described in the book, except when yeah. they address him, they call him Legolas. And that's why yeah, it's that's- such a bizarre, like, what is going on moment. Yeah, I was all excited. And then John Hurt yells out, Legolas. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. And Tony, I also always understood why he got cut from the film. I absolutely never blamed um, never blamed Jackson for cutting Gorfindel. I mean, I love Gorfindel too, um, and thought it was really funny that Asphaloth, his horse, is still by name present in the film. Um, but like Arwen is apparently stolen. Uh, Gorfindel's horse, um, but I thought you know the 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 uh, the desire to um, give Glorfind to give um, Arwen a bigger role, you know, is a very understandable desire, and um, I think we're good. This is an easy choice, right? This is this is a really easy choice for them to put. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Arwen in. So I, I, I always thought it made a whole lot of sense, but okay. I'm pausing here, not just to let the troll catch up to us, but uh, for two reasons. One, if we look back, so we just passed by the um, turnoff to Thornod, right? Uh-huh. We, we just passed that. So, and if we look, oh dear, we're okay. We're taking care of the troll. Um, just looking back, I noticed this tower up on the hill back there. So looking back down the road where we came, uh-huh. That's got to oh, yes. be an, or- an Arnorian watchtower. Just from here, it has all the uh, all the markings of uh, of Arnorian architecture, especially those arches down there at the bottom. Um, I I like don't even need to look to be able to be pretty confident that there are Rudaran crowns on the top of those uh, pilasters there at the on the bottom story there. So Agreed. I think that's I think that's pretty. Uh, um, I think that's pretty clear and makes sense. Again, given where we are here, if we look, we're just we're still south of where, like right due north of here, still um, 
you know, all the way up behind right to our, you know, to the north of us right here is this, you know, <coughs> excuse me, this, this, this bluff leading up, um, you know, above us, we can't really see, but to the north there, uh, is still all that Rudaran territory so that they would have a watchtower down here by the road makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Even if, as we were speculating, this was once a river valley, as from these banks really looks like it could well have been, um, as we were speculating last time. But let's go, isn't, this is our first opportunity to head south from here. Um, Uh So I want to, because isn't there, isn't there something up here? And I think there's something, yeah, I want to be, I want to be looking around down here because I think we've got some ruins and things. Yes, yeah, so this I isn't the place where we get our uh-huh. cloak back. The, uh-huh. the writer's cloak. Here we got some ruins. Oh no, no, no! Yep, here's some ruins. Yeah. Also, clearly our Norin. Yep, similar to the ones that the that we go k- to the campsite with with uh, Bingo Boffin. Yeah, yeah. Fell off the cliffside again. That seems to be a common fate out here. Oh, is that a gazebo out oh, there? Oh, yes, it is. A gazebo, the headless statue gazebo. Absolutely. Yep, 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 yep. yep. The rest fell off the cliff. Oh, there's baddies up here. Oh, are those the Anglerim baddies? Yes, they are. Yep, Angmarm Searcher. Part of the part of the level 50 quest. And Rudaran, you can just see the corner of what is clearly the crown, the, the you know, one of the, the base of one of the trees over here. <clears throat> so before it was overgrown, the base of this gazebo was the big old Rudaran uh, forest crown. So okay, so we've got a Rudaran gazebo here, just looking. So that they would build a gazebo overlooking the road from down here suggests a certain amount of security. That the non-Rudaran and there's another watchtower straight to the... Oh, that's straight to the north. That's the same watchtower, yeah. in fact. We're just seeing from a different angle, so we're looking across the road. All right, good to consult the minimap. Um, so, anyway, uh, it suggests that uh, there, there, there wasn't... Or, again, maybe it's old before the Civil Wars broke out. Maybe, you know, uh, Arthodyne and Cardolan never made it this far, um, so they were pretty secure in this region. Mm-hmm just sort of scouting around. Is this below us? Is that is that the wolf dens? Uh, I see a lot there? of deer. Not quite sure. There's a bit of soft incline here. Okay. I'm just seeing a lot of deer. Alright, let's go back down around here. So I'm going to go back up towards the road, back down around. We climbed up the bluff where the gazebo was. And I want to kind of wind around and see if we can approach that lower... I mean, we could have just jumped down, but I wanted to scout around because we were looking at some ruins here. Yeah. On the other side of the road, the on top of that bluff on the other side, uh-huh. there yep. that's another ruin up there, right? Yes, I think we investigated that one. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going... I want to go down, and then I want to hook around to the right here. Can we... Yes. I thought there was a pass down here. And this... Hmm. No, this is not where I thought it was. This is not where those wolf dens are. 
Maybe we're already too far north for that. This winds up into the further up into the hills down here. Uh, it goes up here. It goes up to the right. Oh, the path goes up to the right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's where it goes. So, hang on. I, I want to come up to the left here, though, because just in case we've seen gazebos and watchtowers on the top of other hills, I want to see if we can overlook the yes, road we have. from and up here and see if we find anything up here. Whew! Rubber banding. Yeah. Uh-huh. Look at this view that we have from up here of that ruin across the way now. We can see that that little platform that we saw is only part. There's a whole Rudaran fortress over there. Uh-huh. It, it mimics the, the rocks and the landscape, too. You notice? Yeah. Yeah, there it is. We can still see it from here. Some trees in the way. But, yeah, that's still there across the road... Yes, and there's that bit back to that same watchtower that we were seeing. Yep. From the road before. Okay, is there anything up on top of here? Can we get up there? I don't know if we can we get up top. Can we loop around here to the? I don't think we can. This looks like a. From the mini map, this looks like a pretty solid wall. I don't think we can. Climb yeah, it goes down into the ravine and then comes out the okay. other side on a path. I think All that's right. well, the limit of our mobility out here. Yeah. Let's check out this down here. Okay, we climb up looking south, and immediately we can see... Aha! Uh-huh, we can see a ruin in the distance there. That's the... Oops, that's the Tal... Yes. Some of the ruins down there in Tal Bruin. And, and you can clearly see from here, even as they're off in the distance, those are clearly elvish ruins... Not Arnorian ruins. You can uh-huh. see the domes, right? Which we saw back in the, um, what's it called? Melindrian, the swamp area in the North Downs was where we were first noting this. Um, we've seen it elsewhere where Lithuanian? there were. Yeah, I'm forgetting Maybe. the name of it. Uh, uh, but anyway. See, does this up to our right here? Does this go back up to where the gazebo was? I think it does. I think that's it back up to the gazebo. Okay. All right, and we can't get back. Oh well, no wait. Here, this is a different gazebo. A different gazebo yeah. with more anger and because another Rudarn gazebo. <laughs> yeah, obviously. So I was a little the confused. I... I had to turn my graphics up before I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> oh right. Yeah. Sorry. The uh, Angmarim obviously enjoy. Rudaran gazebos, clearly. Yeah. The dread gazebo. Okay. So which way are we heading now? This is, hey, look, this is the actual path that I accidentally stumbled across here. Oh, yeah, nice shortcut. I'm I'm still looking back around to the north, kind of wishing I could get up on that hill, but I don't think there's any way up there. No. Hi. Ekid got a Kandalath. tour guide here. Yeah, Ekid Kandalath is just beyond Uh-oh. the south, yeah. southeastern hill. Okay. Yeah, he's got that. He's got the two. He's got that coat of arms still. Yeah, so he's Honest. an elf just, yeah, you're right, just like the ones at the bridge. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, with that same kind of quartered shield with the horse Quarter heads horses. on it. Yeah. 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 Uh, were we thinking Elro here? 
for that? Wasn't that one of our theories? Maybe, except he doesn't have anything like that on his person, I believe. Right. But, you know, maybe he wouldn't, right? Yeah, yeah, but, you know, if I were to make a coat of arms for myself and I was named, you know, L-Force, I'd, I'd probably have forces on my right. shield. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, okay, so what we're st- looking due east from here, we're seeing the the mountains on the far side of the river, right? Yes. That lead up to the switchback that go up to the Hidden Valley. Right. Okay. Hey, hang on a second. So let's, uh, we'll explore the upper ruins soon, but let's look at these down the hill. If we follow this path down, what do we get down here? We pass the friendly troll and all of these probably hostile deer. Okay. And so down here, Uh, the ones with antlers are hostile. Yes. Yeah. All right. So we've got pillars. Any indication of what's under the This is Rudarin. You think so? There's a yeah. That's that's you can see the 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 forest crown on it. Where? Uh, underneath our feet. Under the water. Yeah. I have my graphics turned down. Oh, though, there so it is. I was zoomed. Lag, so. It's funny when I'm, when I, when you're zoomed out, it vanishes. Oh. But when I zoom in, I get it. Wow. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. Clearly. All right, so now this is obviously, like, could not be less defensible, right? This is clearly a beauty spot and not anything involved with defense. So you've got this kind of, like, secret valley thing going on here, right? Where you've got the yes. steep slopes on either side and you've got this big open um, thing with pillars and pavement. And we can assume it wasn't on marshy, marshy stagnant water at the time. Yeah, right, probably not. Um yeah, I, this was probably again like vacation spot or who knows. I, would do you think this was was this roofed? Do you think or arched? Maybe it was a bathhouse. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so we're still finding. Uh, okay, we're down pretty far further south than I expected to find Rudowan things actually. Ah, so that's yeah. interesting. There goes your theory, huh? There goes my theory that we were going to come to the end of Rudaran stuff. Well, again, maybe we, we still... We got a lot of swimming to... bunnies. Oh, dear. I've hit the river accidentally. <laughs> uh, yeah, you sure right. did. Okay, yeah. Look at that. I was just looking around for other... Ah, uh, those ruins. poor horses. Sorry, I'm now looking at the floor beneath the water here. i got to zoom in to see it. Okay, uh, just dirt, no I evidence of flagstones. Yeah, it's just yeah. I said mud and dirt, and it came out mert. Yeah, that works too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. All right, so let's head back up then and go to the Elvish ruins up on the hill. Sure. All right. And yeah, Beldernick, we'll get to, um, we'll get to the, uh, Stuff on the other side of the river. Oh, but, yes. No, um, that's probably going to be a whole other field trip in yeah, itself. Yeah, probably will. We probably will not uh, get to cover that today. Hey, we're getting closer to the Ford, though, in the text. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew we were going to be trying to avoid the Ford today and 
Yes. More goodies later. We're so close. We're so close. We can wait till we can get there. But see, like, even as slowly as we're going through chapter 12, we still have... Hey, wait a second. Stable Master. Oh, yeah, Stable Master. Sorry. Wait a second. What? Is this Rudaran? Is this... What can I do for you? It, from here, it looks suspiciously Rudaran. Is this the one I was seeing from a distance? I think it is. Oh, I my goodness. Was. I think I was completely wrong. This is all Rudaran. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Totally Look Arnorian from beginning to end. Look at that. Clearly Arnorian pillars with a Rudaran thing. This is all Rudaran. Yeah, wow. yeah, it is. So why did from a distance it looked like it was elvish structure just because of those arches and stuff at the top, but those turn out to be not Noldoran arches, but those gazebos. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So if we come. Oh, up- I know. I see the ruins you're looking at. They're across the ravine over here. Oh wait, where are those? Was that a different set? Am I still? Yeah, come up on testifying? this hill over here. Oh wait, hang on. Up, up on, the- on this hill. Oh wait, we're looking over. Oh, hang on, I'm just looking out with this person. And then there's Dusk. Okay. Ooh, wait, Where'd ooh, you go, man? On. Wait, I just. Oh, found you're on the. Else. Just- you're in Death Overlook over there. Yeah, I'm at the scenic look. Look, there's. Uh, ooh, there's there's ruins down at the base down there. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Can we get down there? Very Arnorian looking. Oh, I think that's the one we were talking about. Maybe leaving for next time. That is the secret place. Oh, is it? Is that the other side of the river? Yes, it is. Oh, right. I got all turned around. Okay, right. It's a. Oh, right. Of course, because this is when you're you're looking down, and when you get here in the quest chain, it's like, ah, uh, yes, I look down there, and there's like a disturbance in the forest. Right, right, right. Okay, <laughs> right. Okay, that's next time. Right. Okay. I thought this is the one you have to bring her wine. <laughs> Why did I get that wrong? Okay, sorry. So, which direction are we going? Which which hill? Uh, okay, uh, hang on. North or south from here? Trapped, trapped on this Radaran symbol. Uh, okay, let me get out of this. So, go back to the stable master. Back to the stable master. Okay. Back to the stable master. Back to the stable master. And then go to the hill right across from him. The hill right across. Wait, when you say across. But he, he he's. Right, over here. Okay. So where, where I'm where I'm right, standing gotcha. majestically with my elk. Okay. Standing majestically with your elk. Yes. Okay. Look across the water. Straight uh-huh. in. Get it. Aha. Uh-huh. That's the Elven Ruins. That's what I was seeing. And uh-huh. that is yeah. I think that is a Regian. Is that yeah, is that Gil G- G- Gwingris. That's it. That's that's it. That's Gwingris, right? Yeah, it's something Welsh yeah. <laughs> Gwingris. Gwingris. Of the mining coal people of Gwingris. <laughs> right, and there's another Arnorian gazebo down there. Apologies to any Welsh people listening to this. <laughs> that was not a terrible Welsh accent. It wasn't a great one. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, hey, kudos for, like, being able to imitate a Welsh accent, right? I mean... Uh, I, I, I did my... It's Anthony... Daniels, if we're getting back to Raph Bakshi, he did a very good <laughs> Welsh one for Legolas there. Okay. Yeah, All that right. probably is... Okay. And that's what I was seeing from a distance, right? Mm-hmm. So I so was I seeing see that and wrong. not this. So I wasn't wrong. Yeah. Because oh, this geez. doesn't really poke out much, does it? It's kind of it no. boxed in on all sides. Yeah, that I think is what I was seeing before. So, okay. So hang on a second. So if I go back to these ruins, this is still 
way further south than I was expecting to find Rudara ruins. Uh, yeah, and yeah, yes, yeah. just a colonnade, no arches at all. So, yep, yeah, okay, that was definitely Gwingris that I was seeing before. Um, so, what is going on with this ruin? I mean, I'm first of all, I'm going to say it's going to have to be related to the river. Yeah, like what business did it have being Arnorian in the first place is my question. But, because we are way far afield from Rudar. That's true, but we're not quite over the the the, the Bruin. Right, if, uh, assuming that the Bruin is their, uh, is their boundary. Was the, was the boundary. Yeah. So it, my, my personal theory is that once we cross that river, we're going to stop seeing Arnorian runes. Right. Right, yeah, that we shouldn't see them to the east of the Bruin Inn. Mm-hmm. Sure. I still wasn't sure that we'd be seeing them down here. I was wondering if we were going to start getting the northern reaches of the Aregian stuff, right? So we'd start getting more Elvish stuff. But this is just so non-Elvish. But it's a lot of colonnades, right? I mean, what the heck yeah, was this? Yeah, this... So it's starting weird. to look more like the barracks we saw last time. Yeah, it's a weird spot. I like the ivy. The ivy is very interesting. Yeah, the ivy is kind of cool. All right. Um, where, uh, where can you? Can you only get here from Rivendell? Uh, you actually went away. I've never been before. I usually take the way around that goes right to the Yeah, farm. I usually do too. I just kind of was randomly exploring and ended up here. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, usually I, uh, usually what you do is you go right to the ford and before crossing the ford, you take a hard right and it right, goes down exactly, yeah, yeah. really steep switchback hills and lots of bears. Yes, yes, that's, that's uh, the way that normally I've been, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, but um, from uh, um, from a stable master perspective, can we get here? Can we without going through Rivendell from Oscar Ruth? Can we get? Is there any route? I don't know. It's the problem with with the troll shells. The troll the troll shells are very. Oh, Rivendell I don't centric. think you can because I know I know this because I've done the in league quests, ah. and every time I wanted to go to Ekid Candleth, I couldn't get a stable there unless I went to Rivendell unless first. I went to Rivendell first, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. that's what I. That's what I. I uh, think you can get here from Eregion using other stable masters. I'm not positive so. about that. Get Thornhad, but we can't get def- Thornhad from Oscar Ruth either. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. So. The, the elves and their secrets. They make it very yeah, the difficult. The troll is very insular. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You have to know somebody. I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to hinge on uh, Rivendell reputation on top of that. Yeah. Oh, that's, and that's no help. Okay. No. Well, whatever. Especially since you get it in the Misty Mountains and not here. <laughs> right. Well, you get okay, some of so, it here, but you get more well, Misty Mountains. Right. Right. So we'll come down and we'll explore down around here in southern Talbruin, and we got to go south of this little branch, this little river branch here that we're just to the north of. Uh, we've got some uh-huh. more ruins down there, and then we can check out the ones across the river there that I was seeing from a distance and forgetting that I was seeing them. 
and um, uh, so we'll 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 do that area, and then up up in the top, we can climb up the hills on the far side of the river there, uh, and see what's up on top of the hills, not the hills over towards uh, towards Rivendell, but. Uh, the ones down here to the south. So we'll, we'll 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 explore down here the extreme southern edge of the map um, next time, you like three weeks from now, um, and then uh, <laughs> then we should be close. We should be close to the actual Ford, I think. But anyway, cool. So we should stop there. It is midnight now, so we, I should uh, try to be disciplined and, and let everybody go to sleep so thanks everybody <laughs> Much I appreciated. Say, yeah thanks for joining us everybody um have a good holidays and i will see you three weeks from tonight on january 8th I'm making sure i get yep. my dates right so thanks everybody yes, uh, good night thanks for learning yes could you Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.